0: Hey guys, welcome into the Happy Haven Podcast, as always, it's me, Gnarly Canary, and uh, today we have on the podcast Stephen E. D'Souza, uh, really awesome guy all around. He's worked on so many projects that we've known and loved for years, and I just had a really cool conversation with him, really open, candid guy, so enjoy it as much as I did, guys, Stephen E. D'Souza. Well, first of all, thank you for coming on. Most definitely,
1: sir. I appreciate happy, it. I'm happy to do it. Happy to wave the Action Venture flag for you. Is this, oh, most definitely. Is an audio podcast, or is your dim-like uh, horror movie uh, shot of you and my well-lit shot going to be online? No, yeah. It, it, everything goes out as audio only. Uh, okay. Uh, do I sound okay? Because in the past, uh, I've heard some podcasts and interviews, and it's like I'm in the bottom of a well waiting to be rescued. How do I sound? No.
0: No, it sounds good. You're all right, good. okay. Yeah, most definitely. So um, I reached out because I, I, I see you on Twitter, and we interact with the same people, and then I saw your banner, and I was like, oh man, that's like every cool movie from when I was growing up. And oh, then I looked, and I was like,
1: whoa! Did, if you watch Twitter, did you see this guy trying to drag me the other day, this Martin Trump guy? Did you
0: see my answer? I was like, don't even mess with this guy. Because you responded, you were like, yeah, one more
1: round. And then you oh, that, were just like... Oh, yeah, like, that was you. Oh, yeah, right. That right. was me. But what I was saying, like, I always try to... By the way, it's really strange. A lot of people I know in Hollywood who reveal, like, kind of liberal tendencies, these people get fucking vicious with them, and they return in kind, and I try and be sociable, and they either run away screaming or they apologize to me in the end. So I've never gotten the <laughs> abuse that a lot of my friends get, from some of these ardent uh, Trumpsters, I don't know why. Maybe because secretly they like my movies so much. I'll tell you a strange story that happened to me. Um, uh, I guess it was during right before the election. I had I had a reporter call me up who was from um, what the hell? She was from like a real Rolling Stone or some well-known publication, and she said, "Listen, I want to talk to you about something that you probably don't want to talk about. You probably want to keep it under the radar." it's probably very difficult for somebody like you doing these like two-fisted manly action movies to like keep quiet and on the down low your true feelings and I go this is like that Seinfeld episode uh, like do you think I'm <laughs> gay? What are we? T-? she says no no I want to learn about the Friends of Abe and I go what? the Friends of Abe and I go what is that? he says you know the the secret republicans and all oh yeah I heard of that well why do you think I'm in it? she says dude your movies you know so I go no, you're barking up the uh, the wrong the wrong political party here with me. Yeah, I mean, just because you make an action movie, anyway, that that guy was pretty funny. Uh, I was hoping you would go another round because, I, I, here's what I was going to say. I said, listen, if you're so manly, put your money where your mouth is, right here in a public forum. Say, I accuse you, Stephen D'Souza, of violating the Federal Stolen Valor Act. Of claiming a military career, and then I will be charged by the FBI. I'll be fined, maybe imprisoned, and you will be a big hero with all your friends. And and there's no downside for you because if you're wrong and I win, I'll sue you and win your house. But you live in your mother's basement anyway, so you have nothing to lose. So right. I had that, exactly. I had that ready to go, but he gave up. See that, that. I
0: think that's why I jumped on. I I was actually airborne infantry, so I served in the army.
1: And. Oh, that's- that's more exciting than me. I was a medic, but I never left the U.S. I was in New Jersey, and then I was in uh, uh, Fort Sam Houston. I worked at the uh, VD clinic at Fort Dix, which sounds like a joke. Fort Dix, you know. Wah, wah. But meanwhile, you know, shit happens in peacetime. And like one yeah. day, uh, one day, and training and stuff. And one day, um, a bunch of guys said, listen, let's, you know, let's let get some chow. And I go, um, and, and uh, yeah, and they said, ah, I hate that food. We're going to McDonald's. And I turn around, and, like, five seconds later, sirens go off, and the bell goes off, and we're running out to the gate of the base, and my friends got hit by a truck in their car, and the car was on fire. And, like, like, I'm, like, it's really going to automatic pilot in your training, and you're, like, grabbing people and pulling them out, and, like, wounds and stuff like that. And, like, you go into training, but at a certain point, I'm thinking, this was not supposed to happen in, like, New Jersey, you know. This was supposed to, you know be like in Vietnam. Right, exactly. But yeah, like I
0: saw him go after you for that, and that that really just rubbed me the wrong way, because, you know, a lot of people, when they crow about all the stuff they've done in the military, then it's kind of bullcrap, but when they say it, matter of fact, like, well, you can say what you want, but this is what I did, and it's not, you know, you're not making yourself out to be a hero, you can kind of tell that they're sincere with their service, and to see someone just go after you because they politically disagree with you... And deny your military service, that's why I jumped in because that well, aggravates me
1: anyway it's funny he says you probably tell everybody that I don't think I've ever told that story to anybody like in twenty years yeah the, weird, the weirdest part of the story is uh, one of the guys one of our guys died there were there were four guys in the car and one guy died like while we were working on him, which mm. was just totally crazy and then like um uh this is like you know uh in America right? So, like, in about, about like, 45 minutes later, his mother comes to the base, and the fucking pussy officer, uh, mm. he, like, disappeared on us. And they say, she's out here, somebody's got to talk to her, and all the other guys were, like, you know, yeah, E3s and E4s. They say, Steve, you're good, Steve, with the words, you talk to her. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm going to tell her, like, her son is dead, and I'm wearing, like, the medical, like, the medical wipes that, like, buckle over here, like, in uh, the Wrath of Khan, you know, they button over here with the giant buttons. Yeah, and I'm all in white, and um, I guess uh, 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 you know he was uh, he was uh he the mother the mother had she mother the mother I guess was born in Puerto Rico he was born in Philadelphia uh, she had, had the accent barely spoke English and somehow in her grief decided I was a priest and like just <laughs> to me, like it was very very strange I never forgot it that is a surreal little episode right there <laughs> yeah and like I had I had his it was just like Wrath uh, of Khan I had his blood on my, like, whites, on my medical whites. And she's holding my hand and, and, like, confessing to me. Oh, Lord. Really really strange. I haven't thought about that in, like, almost 40 years. You
0: know what's funny about your exchange on Twitter is I have a local comic book store that I've gone to for years, right? And I I went in there today just to see if there was anything new I was interested in. And uh, I'm going to be a little crass because I'm still mad. Um the fat load behind the counter uh, sitting there just reeking the store up with his VO playing with his D and D dice, but nobody wants to play with him is sitting behind the counter. So obviously he knows somebody who works there. So he's not making the money in sales or spending any money as a customer. He's literally just taking up space on a stool that was probably being unfairly punished by his presence (laughs) being upon it. And I'm talking to now I've gone in there for years and I'm talking to one of my normal guys and we're having a, you know, a a conversation on on modern society and and the loss of civility and how people can't really communicate anymore. And we were blaming social media and stuff. And, And he tried to interject a few times. And, you know, the other guy, because he knows me, because I've gone to this comic shop for years, he knows that I was in the military and that came up. And he made a real snide comment about people who serve and not being very smart because they were willing to to serve in a military that uses them and manipulates them. And, and and I ignored it. And then he came out and he was like, oh, well, you're just a stupid teabagger then. Now, I have not said which political party I belong to because I surrendered my identity politics to that because... Both parties can suck it for me right now. You know, I'm not saying I'm liberal or conservative, but he just turns around in front of all these customers, in front of these people, a man he's never met, and he's like, oh, well, this conversation's about to devolve rapidly because you're a teabagger. And I looked at I looked at my friend that's worked there forever, and I was like, I'm going to go find a new comic book store. And, I, and he, like, fell all over himself, and he was like, no, please don't. And I was like, no, I'm like, this guy's going to sit here not be a part of your business, and not give you business. He's just going to sit here and take up space and confront customers that he doesn't know. I'm like, he, he's going to ruin your business. Uh, you know. And, 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 but it's like the same thing, where like the attack came out of nowhere, and you're like, who hurt you yeah. in your life where you just randomly attack strangers? <laughs> like, what is wrong with you?
1: Well, in whatever comic book store you, you frequent uh, in August, uh, check out the uh, new run of Sheena uh, we're doing uh, because I, I've been uh, uh, I've been uh, for like already i uh, am going back to you know it's like you know 35 odd years I've probably uh, been a showrunner or producer on like uh, eight or nine television series uh, and you know you work with uh, story editors and staff writers I've never had a group of talent on TV shows that is worked I've had like, working on this comic book for me they're just phenomenal uh, oh, and, so you're working on a book. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been, I I made a deal with the estate that had Sheena Queen of the Jungle uh, in 2009, and I rebooted the character for the modern era, and we've been, we're now we're our third publisher. We're finally, we're, and our best publisher, we're with Dynamite now. okay, uh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, if you go back, we published two graphic novels of the previous company, which you can find, where I did a lot of the writing uh, on the two previous graphic novels. We, we did like, uh, about 14 comics at, uh, Devil's Due uh, from, uh, 2009 to, uh, no, 2008 to 2011. Uh, and then, uh, we're doing, and now I'm with, uh, uh, uh Dynamite, and they're kind of doing a Shino year one. We're sort of rolling back to the beginning. Cool. You know, a lot of, yeah. uh, but, uh, it's a fantastic team, great writers, fantastic artists, uh, and what's great is like, Whereas like with the previous publisher, I ended up having to write a lot of the issues, and the writers got lazy. Like instead of solving a problem, they would just call me on the phone. Uh, but this group is is phenomenal. And like I, I like last month, I had like no notes. I had no notes on the issue at all. I'm sure wow. they were like I'm sure they were opening champagne at the at the publishers, you know, because I I you know I sort I I I, uh, I don't miss anything, you know, um, and. Uh, uh, it's a great book. So uh, they're doing a Sheena issue zero, which comes out in August, and it's priced at twenty five cents, which was a brilliant move. I mean, comics are usually two ninety nine now. So uh, apparently, the the advance uh, orders were like through the roof last week. Dynamite did this press release. We've set co- you know records for co- it's the record breaking uh, sales of uh, uh, issue zero of Sheena. So uh, they're very happy. Anyway, check it out. I'm really, really proud of the job they're doing.
0: Oh, most definitely will. And um, yeah, if you let me know release dates, I'll I'll, I'll well, put it if, out well, there on all my stuff so
1: people can know right, about it. Well, uh, you know, uh, if you if you ch- just check out Dynamite, you'll see their press releases. They also put uh, some interior pages up just two or three days ago. They put up a sneak preview with some of the interior pages, but the, the covers are breathtaking. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, I'll, I'll get that out there. Yeah, yeah. and the, simultaneously, we're working on a. Uh, Um, uh, you know, sending this up as a new iteration of a new motion picture. Uh, and, uh, we're deep in negotiation. We have two studios we're negotiating with right now, and I think there'll be news on that, uh, within two weeks. I'll let you know. I'll give you a scoop. Yeah, most definitely. That's amazing. I'd love to, I'd love to support it and get it out there for you guys. Well, I really think that Wonder Woman is what, like, like, everybody in Hollywood wants to be the second person to do something the first time. And I think that Wonder (laughs) Woman. No, no, it's true. So I think Wonder Wonder Woman's success has made these people spontaneously call me. You know, cuz I went to some of these studios like uh like, you know, last year. Eh, I don't know, whatever, you know, and there was a movie that tanked years ago, and you know, all of a sudden they looked me up because of like Wonder Woman, I'm sure it helped. The Wonder Woman buck.
0: Oh yeah, most definitely. I actually had um Gal Gadot's stunt double on a couple weeks ago okay. talking about talking about being a part of that and she she's amazing. She's been stunt doubles for just about yeah. every badass woman that's been on TV and in the movies, and she's a world class martial artist. And she was saying that, that that the it's been crazy watching what what's being built around Wonder Woman upon its yeah. release and everything.
1: So. So they went back and they they went back and did reshoots on Justice League to ma- give Wonder Woman more material, as they should. She was awesome. Yeah. It's the
0: best, uh, I mean, for me, it's the, next to Man of Steel, it's the best uh, DC cinematic universe thing they've done. But I'm also a loyalist to the material, so I had, you know, my my issues were with, you know, Lex Luthor's portrayal and Batman killing everybody in Batman v Superman, and, you know, I had super major issues
1: with that. It's a, it's a sobering thought that Lex, when Lex Luthor ran for president, he put all of his assets in a blind trust. He was actually more ethical than Trump. Actually, he was. And smarter. And
0: smarter. I, I'd, I, like to, I'd like to see a Lex Luthor that's actually um, comic accurate, where it's not either that weird Jesse Eisenberg tape of like a small little man with mental problems yeah. Or the Gene Hackman, where every idea this supposedly smartest man has is a bad real estate scam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I <laughs> right, so the Gene Hackman is closer to Trump then, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and they tried to do it again with Spacey and with Superman Returns, and it still ended
1: up being... Oh, that was painful. Superman Returns was painful.
0: It was, but it still ended up being a real so estate well, scam. It
1: was so well-intentioned, but sometimes, you know, like, you know, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions.
0: It was. I heard there was a lot of studio intervention actually on that, because there. You know, you. I mean, you've been in. You've been around the industry since the seventies. I mean, you know, like once a studio starts intervening, a really beautiful project can be, Lip- parsed Lip- away to.
1: Lipnick's taking an interest. That remember from uh, Barton Fink. Uh huh. <laughs> you remember? Uh, I forget the actor, uh, the guy that's on uh, Monk. Uh, I can't name his name now. He's a terrific actor. Uh, um, Shaloub or Tatura Yeah, Tony Shaloub. Like he, Shaloub. He, he 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 climbs over his desk and says, "What did you say? What did you say to him? Lipnick's taken an interest." <laughs> Isn't that good? No, that's not good. That's not good.
0: Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I've I've seen it. I mean, I, I've talked to to people and just. Yeah, they say studio intervention, it'll just pick the, the meat off of a, of a product project and just leave a skeleton you're supposed to make look alive well, well, sometimes.
1: Part of, part of the problem in my experience is you get into a meeting and there's like sort of too many people in the room and they are not interested in, the, and not everybody, maybe nobody, but without a doubt, not everybody around that table of the studio executives is interested in saying something that will make the movie better. Many of them are interested in saying something that will impress their boss in the room. Yep. My favorite example is a movie that never happened. It unraveled in the room, which was called The Army Navy Game. And this is a script that they had that, uh, had, was a treatment they had, and they wanted me to write the screenplay. And the idea was that in an opening scene, there was the Army-Navy game. This is a football game between the uh, Naval Academy and West Point, between Annapolis right. and West Point. And the two rival quarterbacks who were like sort of equally good, but had a rivalry. And, uh, uh, it, it came down to like a really tricky thing and, and the, the, and, and the, uh, uh, you know, you know, it was a, you know, there was a call and, you know, wasn't a touchdown, whatever. And like there was a fight on the field, whatever. And then comes in the present. It turns out that one of the guys had turned rogue, a la The Rock. You okay, know, they, I got what they, you mean. Yeah. Right, and now they say, you have to go get that guy. You know that guy. So there's a replay. So the meeting is going fine. We're talking about what you know, what could make it work and what could be this could happen, that could happen. And then some bright person in the room says, wouldn't it be interesting if one of these people was a woman? All the academies are co-ed now. Couldn't that work? Uh, interesting point, Dave. What do we think? Let's talk about Steve. What do you think? I go, so you are trying to be diplomatic, and I go, well, I mean, it's interesting, and, and uh, Demi Moore was great in that movie where she was a Navy SEAL. Uh, G.I. Jane, right? G.I. Jane. It's, yeah. It's not a crazy idea, but although the academies are co-ed, the football teams aren't. Right. So you would lose the element that they had had this conflict, a famous conflict that was on wide world of sports, you know, like one of these right. moments, ugly, you would lose that. So it gets quiet for a moment. So anyway, so what I was thinking, and this idiot goes, on, well, wait a second. There's other sports. Maybe they have, is it, isn't it mixed, mixed tennis, mixed doubles? That's right, they do have tennis. And what if they were on the tennis team and it's mixed doubles? They wanted to
0: sell an action movie prefaced off a tennis game?
1: No, so I'm going, so the opening scene is a mixed doubles game? Like, like yeah. I said, but I don't think that that could end up with a pile on where, like, both teams come running onto the, the field. <laughs> right. So, you know, and so, like, that was my most famous example of, like, uh, of some uh, bright person in the room unraveling the sweater. This is all. This this is this is not over. Have we started the podcast? I don't know. Oh, yeah, we have. Well, this is the podcast. Oh, no, Well, now it's going to be diverging into all these crazy things, you know? No, this is
0: actually, um, this is the way I do it. I don't set up interviews. I actually, okay. um, I mean, it's a vehicle for me to talk to people that have done things and are currently doing things that I love and I've respected and admired. I always do it like a conversation and not a press conference. You have to get
1: the scissors in here and edit some of this
0: stuff I think is going on too long. No, we're good. So how how did you go from from the from the military to to writing? I guess I mean I don't you know, like like what were you always interested in writing? Did you write when you were younger? Or uh, I did
1: I did indeed. In fact, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I'm talking about really young, from like you know like six or seven years old, I was drawing and making my own comic books. Uh, if you would asked me as a child what I would end up doing, I would have said uh, I'll either be making comic books or I'll be a cartoonist for Walt Disney Studios. Uh, in fact, uh, I was in a conversation just the other day, uh, with, uh, uh, uh a terrific, uh, comic artist who's really well known, uh, who, who I'm, I'm going blank now, a senior moment. Uh, and for some reason I dug into my files and I dug up some illustrations I did when I was 14. Um, I remember distinctly like in, uh, I guess it was ninth grade, uh, the teacher said, I want you guys to all write and illustrate your version of a, uh, of a fairy tale. Uh, so, uh, I did mine. And they called the school psychiatrist, and they made me meet with the school psychiatrist and called my parents in for my oh, no. of the fairy tale. And I did Goldilocks and the Three Bears as a uh, Mickey Spillane, like uh, uh, Mike Hammer, a detective novel, told from the point of view of a detective. This, you know, this blonde came into my office. You know, her legs went up to there. What's your name? Goldie, Goldilocks. My sister is missing. And then uh, he gets involved with the bear crime family, Papa Bear, Baby Bear. and my, Nice. And and I, and if you look at, if you go on through my Twitter feed, you see the illustration. I have this hot blonde, you know, with her blouse down to here, and a detective, and these bears with guns shooting at him. And then there's a scene of, of, uh, the, the bear family deadly assassin, uh, uh a. Dumpty. <laughs> I was like, you know, Humpty Dumpty, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, I, I, I was, I was so, uh, delusional, uh, or precocious, I started trying to sell things to magazines. When I was a student, and finally in my senior year of high school, I actually sold a story to a men's magazine called Rogue, which was, uh, trying to be like Esquire or Playboy. Uh, it had a brief moment where it was literary, later on degenerated. Uh, so I got in trouble again and got sent to the principal again and the psychiatrist. I brought the magazine to school, and the, uh, in the, the shop, the, uh, a homeroom teacher said, What are you doing? What are you passing around back there? Bring that up here. Well, Mr. D'Souza, we, uh, don't think uh, highly of pornography here. We're going to have your parents in, and we're sending you. In. So are they sending you up the office? Oh, I'm good
0: lord!
1: I'm um, with the principal, and uh, 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 and the, and the school shrink, and they're waiting for my parents to come in. And they say, "What on earth make you think we have to?" This is a three-day suspension, Green. Well, it's not pornography. The Supreme Court. Don't tell me that. And he says, "But I did not bring in for the pictures."
0: Yeah, everybody
1: said, "No." I have an article on their page fifty-seven. It's right behind the centerfold. So. so So now the the, the principal opens it up and goes, holy shit, that's your name. That's fantastic. What do they pay you for that? And the whole conversation changes. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. At the end of the day, they go on the PA system and they go, "Uh, well, uh, the pep pep squad will meet in room three. Uh, The soccer field is being reseated. uh, So we're going to have soccer practice on the uh, softball field. And congratulations to one of our seniors, Stephen Souza, who was published today in – um, well, he was published. <laughs> didn't want to. did so want, want to, to say what? the publication name. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, I went. I went off to. Uh, I, I went to Penn State, where one of my teachers was um, Philip Klass, who was a famous science fiction writer uh, who published science fiction under the name of William Ten and he had some famous students. The guy who wrote Rambo, uh, 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 among them. Um, wow. And, uh, and, Uh, Another teacher I had was a David Shepard, who later on became a very, very famous uh, uh, film archivist and restored a lot of the uh, silent movies that have been restored that you'll see on cable, it'll say restored by him. And, like, uh, all these teachers were saying to me uh, in my sophomore year, Steve, you should just drop out of school and go to Hollywood. You're just wasting your time here, which is a strange thing, you know, to tell somebody. Uh, But uh, before I could do that, my number came up, and I had to go in the Army. So when I got out of the Army, and uh, and, and I, I I got married right after I got out, and I go, okay, now I got it, you know, and suddenly I have a baby and everything. Um, and uh, I said, okay, I need to get work. So I'm literally, like, the first week I'm looking for work, I'm looking in the newspaper, and I see uh, an ad uh, in the Bucks County newspaper. It says, uh, wanted writers, producers, directors. Now, if you see an ad like that in a newspaper, it's usually a fraud for some kind of uh uh, shady, what we call talentiers—people that hmm. present themselves as managers or, or agents, but actually charge you—you you know, like upfront. Uh, but what it was is a PBS station was opening up in Trenton, New Jersey, and because they had federal and state money, they had to advertise in all of the newspapers. So right. I said, well this, "This is my opportunity." Uh, so um, you know, I have I, I have like two years of school. I don't have a degree, but my classes are all like film and stuff like that. And, I've, and by this time, I would accumulated uh, probably seven or eight appearances in print in a variety of publications, ranging from Rogue Magazine to the New York Times in the entertainment section. So I had a wow. little portfolio. So I figure, okay, I'll, I'll go. Uh, I'll go in there. So I drive across the bridge into uh, New Jersey, uh, and I'm looking at the address, and you know, there's no TV station. So I drive around the block two times, and the third time I come around, they're draping a cloth uh, sign. WNJT TV on top of a neon sign for a bowling alley. But the bowling alley and the pin are still blinking in neon under the, the under, um, <laughs> so they, they had bought the, they had bought the bowling alley via the TV station. So I go inside, it's all under construction. And, uh, they actually left two lanes intact because they had made a deal with bowling for dollars, a TV show to film bowling for dollars there. And in fact, one of my first directing uh, jobs was directing bowling for dollars. So, uh, I'm going out there saying these, say, listen, uh, you know, to the to the team from U.S. Steel, guys, you're bowling too fast. You got to slow down. we to go. What do you mean I'm bowling too fast? I got a. Who is this kid? I got a rhythm. Get this guy out of my face. Anyway, <laughs> I, I I go in for the job interview, and uh, I'm prepared. I'm ready. I'm. Uh, figuring out maybe I'll get a job as like an assistant to somebody. You know, exactly. production, a PA or something. You know, I. You know, uh, uh, and um, uh, they say you got to go see this guy. Now, this is like you know, like you know, st- status thinking. Uh, this, is, this is 1971, I think. Uh, and they say, well, who are we going to put in charge of a public television station, which has funding the state of New Jersey? Who understands this show business stuff? So they decide that the guy who's in charge of all the audiovisual equipment for the state jail and prison system, that was his qualification to, like, hire everybody for a TV station. Sure, so, why not? Yeah, so they have, like, uh, uh, on... Uh, uh, plywood uh, supports like a little like L-shaped corner to create a office in this huge empty bowling alley space.
0: And I go around
1: <laughs> and the first thing I see is an amputated stump of this guy's leg. He's scratching his stump because he's taken his wooden leg off. Now I had just come out of being, you know, an army medic. So I had seen my share of stumps. So I wasn't fazed. So, right. I go, oh, sorry, I you're here early. He puts his leg back on and he interviews me. And I show him my portfolio he goes, uh-huh. and goes, uh huh, like New York Times, uh eh, huh, nah, nah. he's working his way, uh eh, nah, nah. Oh, Road Magazine, I know that one. Uh, uh, <laughs> he says, wow, you're, you know, you're really qualified. Uh, uh, the only thing we had that would have really been right up your alley, we had a job open for a writer, but we filled those two writers. So I go, well, you know, I'm, I'll take a PA, I'm ready to say, I'll, I'll take a PA, and then before I get to the A, he says, but we do have an opening for a writer-slash-producer. How's that? Ooh. So I go, oh, okay, I'll take that. Uh, so uh, I, uh, I got hired there, and I worked there for 18 months, uh, and uh, it was a good experience. I learned a lot. And at the same time, this was when the very beginning of kind of an independent, you know, non-Hollywood films were happening was the first wave of that. Uh, so... Um, you know, I I met some like-minded people, and I said, why don't we make a movie? Uh, And we uh, went around, and we raised money from independent people. And I made a low-budget movie, which is now streaming. You can find it. It's on uh, um, uh, Shout TV, Shout Factory TV. They have a channel. The film was called Arnold's Wrecking Company. Um, And I won a uh, gold medal special jury prize at the 1972 Atlanta Film Festival, it was kind of like a... Uh, hey, I'm she, in Atlanta. Yeah, what? I'm okay, in Atlanta. Okay, this is the Atlanta International Film Festival, which uh, went for a while, then it died, and then it's, it's in a resurrection now. Yeah. Uh, any, anyway, uh, it was kind of like a Cheech and Chong movie before Cheech and Chong. Uh, so when we put this movie together, uh, I'm like, you know, some of the people I hired for the crew were people I know from the TV station. So we had a guy who was a camera operator at the TV station, and he said, listen, I have a friend... Uh, in Philadelphia is it actually uh, uh, my cousin's husband and he has a film rental house, and I can get a really good rate for all the equipment. Uh, and especially on the weekends you want if you're doing a low budget, you want to rent the equipment on a Friday evening because you only charge it right. one day till Monday. and we'll get a really special rate even better than the weekend rate. So we did this for the whole time we're shooting this we're shooting this movie for I guess like eight or nine months on weekends. So anyway, one day I come into the TV station, and they say you better go right to the uh, chief to the uh, uh, executive producer's office. And it turns out that this guy had lied to us. He had no cousin, his husband. He was actually sneaking the, ca- the television station's equipment out on the weekends and renting it to us. And you know, so I got fired. Jeez. We, I got fired for like for like. But I, said, I didn't even know. But like they didn't care. Uh, so that uh, sucks. Yeah. So that's what. So I go. Well, I'm out of work anyway. Maybe I, you know. Uh, so, uh, uh, I, 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 it, it took me a little while, uh, but finally, uh, I, you know, I was kicking around, I was still trying to make a living, and in a big year, subsequently, I mean, a really big year, I made, like, $3,000 as a writer. You know, my, my wife was making more money as a school teacher than I was, and now I have a, I have a, I have a, I have a little girl, uh, and then, uh, uh my dad said, listen, you come back and work for the family firm, which has a whole lot of a drama, except, especially with my, my dad and most of his, my dad and his brothers, they were all in the, uh, real estate development business, uh, uh, not remotely Trumpy and much more smaller scale. I still wanted the people though from Philadelphia who go to D'Souza, to I know you. And I go, yes, you've probably seen some of my movies. and No, they've seen the name on the building, you know, <laughs> I, I guess it's flattery. So anyway, um, uh, I'm, so I remember it was like my, um, uh, I guess my 26th birthday, uh, and I'm like super depressed. Uh, and, uh, uh, I didn't want to go work for my dad, uh, and, uh, uh, we weren't getting by and we we're getting food stamps. And my wife says, well, my wife was driving like 20 miles away to go, go shopping because you don't want anyone to see her using food stamps in a local market. Uh, so I'm, and I just gotten a new rejection slip from the latest thing I wrote. So I put the television on and I started watching this movie, which I remember to this day. It was like at this time in the seventies, uh, all the networks would make these uh, movies of the week. Yeah low-budget B-movies, but they would be genre pictures, and they would have well-known, they would have either big stars from Hollywood who are now, like, you know, like, on, on the love boat, like, getting, you know, not so much in demand in Hollywood, and rising television stars. So this was trying, this was in the era of, like, Tower of Inferno and the uh, Poseidon Adventure. This America, was was, it, was that from,
0: about the same time as, like, America, the one they did with the K? Do you know uh, what I'm no, talking
1: about? That was later, that was later. Okay, okay this that was later. This is, this is, I, this has, got to be 19, this has got to be November 1975, I oh, okay. Say, around my okay. birthday. So uh, this is trying to be a disaster movie. but they have no money. So I believe it was called Skyway to Death. And the disaster is that a, the gondola that takes tourists from Palm Springs to the top of a mountain, right, got stalled halfway up. This is the only disaster they can afford. So instead of the cross-section of people trapped on the Poseidon, this is like, you know, 11 people in a gondola. So, like, there's a thief who's escaping with money from a bank robbery. Like, that's what I would do if I robbed a bank. i get her a gondola that goes to a restaurant. Yeah, so, so. a nice slow right. love that puts you on a mountain where you can't run, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And then there's a priest who's, who is, uh, who is like, being tempted to have a love affair with uh, one of his, somebody in his congregationists and she, he's going with her to break it her. He, like, he can't leave the priesthood. And then there's Patty Duke. I forget what her deal was. And then there's, like, a pregnant woman, the usual suspects. Right. I so thinking, this thing, and I'm going, God, this is stupid. Not only that, it's a bad piece of post-production because the gondola is rocking, but in the reverses, it's not. Damn it, I could do better than this. So that's when I decided to sit down and write two spec screenplays. Now, at Penn State, the, uh, the, the film curriculum had been so recently invented that it was kind of a quick... Uh, and art blend of, uh, the theater, uh, broadcasting, and, uh, English curriculums. And there was no course in screenwriting, but they still had a playwriting course, which yes. I took, which I took in Ace. My English, my, my English, I gotta come back, my English teacher though, flunked me on the final paper. I'm a good writer. My final paper was supposed to write on, on Oedipus Rex. And I wrote that Oedipus did not kill his father. That, that, that if you interpret the the only witness is a blind man. I mean, really, the only witness to the crime is blind. Tiresias, I mean, right, 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 right. Who? You know, and I say, if you if you use the old credo for crime, uh, it's either cherche La Femme or follow the money. Who has the most to benefit if um, if Oedipus is deposed as king? Creon is uncle. So I think Creon bribed Tiresias, to make up the story, knowing it would drive... You know, this is a a brilliant analysis, which the guy gave me an F. But anyway, uh, I actually took the train to New York to a bookstore called Cinemabilia, which is the only bookstore, it's closed now, it's legendary. They had all the film books. Just to get a book on film, I had no idea, like, what is a screenplay script supposed to look like? Because if you got books in that era, they would print them in play format for some reason. They would not reproduce the page. They They would make it like a book thing. So then I sat down, and I spent, uh, I guess, the next four months, four or five months, writing two spec screenplays, and they were the two genres that kept me in ninth grade two years, because I always had either Isaac Asimov, uh, you know, or Dashiell Hammett behind my algebra book, and I wrote a crime thriller and a science fiction script. And then I uh tearfully said bye to my wife and baby, and we had a... um uh, uh, I remember, on, on uh, uh, some drunk driver on Christmas Eve crashed into our parked car on the street, uh, mm. and, and 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 ran away. So I sold that extra car for scrap. I got three hundred dollars for it, and I said, "Well, that'll pay for a ticket to uh, L.A." They had these cheap tickets then, and I had an aunt and uncle in L.A., and I could sleep on their sofa. So I had a cheerful farewell to to uh, uh, my wife and baby, and said, I, "I you know I'm going to Hollywood. I don't want to be forty years old and figure I never tried real show business. I got to try it." outside of Philadelphia, and I'm going to give myself 90 days to be a success in Hollywood. That sounds like a reasonable amount of time, 90 days. If I can't make it to 90 days, I guess I don't don't have the requisite chops, so I get on the airplane. So I, I come to Hollywood, and I arrive on a Saturday, and I go to my aunt and uncle, and they're welcome, welcome, and you'll sleep on the pull-out bed in the guest room. Um, and then on Sunday, I look in the newspaper, and I figure, you know, maybe, you know, maybe it might take, you know, maybe I won't get a, uh, get, get a, a studio job for the first, you know, few weeks, so or it might take, who knows, it might take two months to be discovered. Right. Yeah, who knows? You know, like, you know, on the you know at the outside. So I should look for a real job. So I look in the newspaper, and I see two jobs that I could qualify. One was a proofreader uh, wanted for Peterson Publishing. They do all the car books, and the other one was telemarketing. So I call up uh, and I and I call up and I leave a message and I go, yeah, okay, come in. Uh, and then I see an ad. that says contestants wanted for a game show. Are you good at crossword puzzles? Come down. All right. Well, I'll do that too. Uh, so Monday, I go uh, first thing in the morning. I go downtown to the interview for the uh, uh, Peterson Publishing, and they give me a. dot. Uh, they say, "All oh, right, proofread this, uh, uh, this this copy." They give you several pages of copy, right? Uh, and I know all the proofreading symbols because I was on the school newspaper, and then I was an editor of the of the Penn State uh, humor magazine, Fraud. So I know. What, so I turn it in, and the guy says, "Holy shit!" You know. I've been here nine years. You're the only person who's ever got 100% on the group reading test. You can start here next Monday. Uh, but first, they say, What brings you out here? You sound like you're from the East Coast. Well, Hollywood. is, is Well, you can start here next Monday if, if you're not working at Warner Brothers. Ha ha. Thank you. So now I go to my next interview, which is the telemarketing interview. And the guy gives me the script. And he, and he says, What brings you out here? He says, Well, yada, yada, yada. I want to be in show business. Da, da, da. So he gives me the, the, the uh, uh, script for the telemarketing. And he puts on a tape recorder, and uh, I go into more of an FM radio voice than I'm doing for you. Now I go, have you thought about the aluminum siding? Your home is your most valuable asset, and the aluminum siding will guarantee a, li- guarantee a lifetime for your home. You can pass it on, whatever, new generation. Fine, great, great. Listen, you're great. You can start next Monday here if you're not working at MGM. Ha, ha, ha. So then, <laughs> I, go, then I go from there to the to the auditions uh, for the game show at one of the studios. So I go into the room, and there's like 150 people there I saw this ad. And they give everybody a crossword puzzle to do. It's like a, a Xerox. It's like a middle school crossword puzzle. It's like mortifyingly easy. All right. But, but nonetheless, it eliminates half the people in the room. So now they say, okay, uh, if, you, if, we don't, if, we, if you don't call your name, uh, you know, your names are on a bulletin board. If your name's not there, thank you very much. Uh, watch the newspapers. We have other game shows have other opportunities. So now they're survivors. We're down to 75 people. Uh, they make everybody get up in the front of the room to say a few words. And this is designed to eliminate anyone who will choke on television. Right. right. You know, millions of people are watching a hominy, hominy, hominy here. Um, so the first person gets up and says, um, Hi, my name is Debbie, and uh, I won, uh, I was uh, uh, Miss Minnesota uh, runner-up, and I want to be an actress. Hold it right there, Debbie. No, we're not talking about how you want to be an actress. Hold it right. How many people in this room came here to be in show business? So out of 75 people, like 68 raised their hands. All right, this show is on all of America. They want to relate with people. So don't talk about your show, Business Dreams. When we introduce you on the show, should you get on it? We're going to tell us your last real job. Gotcha. That's right. So I get up and say, All well, right, my last real job, I was a substitute English teacher, uh, which I was doing the whole time I was suffering and I was out of work uh, because you only needed two years uh, uh, of college to be a substitute teacher. So I was a former English teacher. and Okay, fine. So I make the cut." Now they say, okay, so the survivors, which were about maybe 30 people, they say, you come back here tomorrow and we're going to run fake drills uh, of the game show
0: to decide
1: who we put on the show at the end of the week. Now, what I left out of here is that at the film festival, where I won a prize, but I had the misfortune of signing for the release for my, you know, stoner movie, with an independent pr- pr- uh, distributor who went bankrupt the week the movie came out. So the oh. movie had literally no play. But at the film festival, I won a gold medal and a special jury prize. And on the jury that awarded me the prize was Bud Bedeker, who was a famous uh, director of Westerns, uh, yep. Martin Landau. I actually tweeted about Martin Landau the other day. It was a birthday. And I, if you're on my Twitter feed, you see a photograph of me and Martin Landau. They're giving me, an, giving me the, the award. Yeah. And also, there was a, Barney Rosenzweig, who was the producer of Charlie's Angels. So uh, he said, look me up if you ever come to Hollywood. So now, on the very same Monday, I look him up, and it turns out he just got divorced. He's living in some crappy apartment in Malibu, and Charlie's Angels has been canceled. So he says, listen, um, right now I can't hire you or anything, but what I can do is I can recommend you to my agent, if you've got some spec scripts, I'll call him up right now, and he calls right in front of me and says he's going to bring the scripts over tonight. Okay, they're waiting for you. All right, so this has been a pretty good day. I drive back from Malibu uh, into Beverly Hills. I drop off my two sample scripts at this agent's, and I go back to my aunt's. It's a pretty good first day. All right, so uh, the next day, I go back on the game show, uh, and I, you know, eliminate, um, you know, uh, a whole bunch of people, and now I'm in among the finals. And I remember that the, the only person who was in my league on the crossword puzzles was a lovely uh, young woman named Victoria Stevens. I remember her name uh, to this day. I'll get into that. Anyway, I get back to my uh, aunt's house, and she says, a package came for you, right? And it's an envelope, a manila envelope, from this talent agency that where I dropped the script off yesterday. Wow, that's um, fast. Delivered by hand. Yeah, it's fast. And I go, that's exciting. I open it up, and my two scripts are in there. They've been out of my hands for, like, 24 hours. It looks like they've been gone for a month. The, the, you know, the papers, p- pages are torn out of the brads. The name of the script has been written on the edge, like they do when they put scripts on a shelf. Yeah. There's a coffee ring on one script. And then there's a note clipped at to the top. Sorry, too busy to read these now. Dictated, but not read. Like an insult uh, to injury. Uh, so I... Uh, call up the guy and he says that guy what an asshole I can't believe he did that you know I'll, 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 uh, I'll talk to him I'll make him no no I don't want to give it to If this is added, if I want him to read it and my aunt here's this conversation and she says you know my best friend uh, is secretary uh, to um, the producer of uh, uh, of uh, Wheel of Fortune and um, uh, a lot of other uh, a lot of other game shows um, I forget his name what the hell was his name he had a talk show too uh, I'm going blank here. Um, God, he's, he's since died. Uh, yeah, you know you'll you'll feel like me, but maybe you look smart. You'll cut out this whole part. We're we're like I'm dim and dumb. But he had he had a, he had a famous talk show, and the uh, uh, it was a well-known person. I'm going blank here. This is really pathetic. Donahue, what? Donahue? No, no, like, Donahue. No, it wasn't. It wasn't Phil Donahue. Uh, uh, hey, uh, look up um, a song called "Lovely Bunch of Coconuts" and tell me who sang it. That's all right. And he'll get back to me. You'll cut this all out so I don't look like an idiot. Alright, so anyway, why don't you go see her? What? Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin. thank you. Merv Griffin! Uh, so he said, my, my, my best friend is Merv Griffin's secretary. He does all these game shows. He has a talk show. Maybe something for you. Uh, I'll call her up right now and, uh, she'll see you. She'll have lunch with you. Alright. Yeah. So I make, so, uh, I make an appointment, uh, to, uh, see her and, uh, she's going to see me, uh, uh tomorrow. All right. So this has been a uh, so this has been a uh, really exciting uh, day. This is Tuesday. Uh, so um, Wednesday, I go back to have more rehearsals of the crossword puzzle Show. And now they eliminate everybody except the people who are really going to be on the air. Ten people who will do five shows that we will tape on Thursday because they tape a week's worth of shows uh, at once. Um, and, right, uh, right. Yeah. So that's wrapped up. Wrapped up well, so um, then I uh, go have lunch with my aunt's friend uh, and I'm very excited. I go to, to, to uh, uh, CBS Studio City and as I walk in, I see the, I walk past the Hollywood Square set and I see everybody in the square getting ready to be filmed, so it's very exciting. Uh, you yeah, know that's it, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Uh, so uh, I, I have lunch with her in the studio commissary um, and she says, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I see you have wonderful writing samples here and stuff. Uh, but since I spoke to your aunt, I asked here, and we only hire when we hire people to write the game show questions. That's the only writers we really hire. Uh, and we're not doing that right now. And there are a couple of writers who work on uh, the Merv Griffin show, but they just really write the, int- they're really more, they're the same people that do the arrange for the guests. They sort of write the questions and stuff that, that Merv, so there really isn't your kind of writing. So I'm really depressed, but she says, you know, there was a, um, there was a uh, lawyer who worked for Merv, a young lawyer, and he left the firm, and I heard he just started this week as an agent. And I know him very well. We talked all the time. Uh, I can call him up, and I know he'll see you, you know, cause it, it, he's a starting agent. In fact, he said to me, I, I need to find clients. So if you know anybody, send them to me. So you can go right over and see him. Like, you know, I think he's, this is his third day at work. So I was great. So, you know, I had already brought everything with me, thinking I was going to sit with Bert Griffin and say, read all this stuff. You know? So right. I drive over to this agent's office, and this guy is literally, like, uh, uh, taking things out of a carton and putting them in his desk. Like, he like it's his third day. And he doesn't even have an office. He's, like, like behind, like, you know, like a uh, like little glass wall. Yeah. All right. So he says, um, uh, okay, well, you have, have sample script. It's very important. A lot of people... Uh, uh, think that they can bring, like, their novel or their short stories, but, you know, you only can get hired as a screenwriter, if you know, with sample scripts. Um, will you do television? And I go, what do you mean? He says, well, some people say they'll only do theatrical. I go, no, no, I'll, I'll do anything. All right, fine, fine, you know, I promise you I'll read stuff right away. So that's, you know, that's Wednesday. Thursday, I go to the studio, and we tape the show, and to my dismay, uh, they put me as uh, head-to-head with Victoria Stevens. Which I take as an omen because my name is Steven. See, so it's very portentous. of right. Stevens. So unfortunately, I kill her. It did help. My partner was Betty White. Well, you know, they have celebrity partners. You know, so. Uh, oh my gosh, Betty White is my
0: partner. Uh, my ten-year-old she, daughter is obsessed with Betty White.
1: Well, she's fantastic. She's a riot. By the way, if you look hard enough on the on the internet, if you type Betty White playing card, you will be surprised what you get. I leave it at that. It was very early in her career, but she's in a a set of playing cards uh, 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 along with Betty Page. So Betty White and Betty Page are both playing cards in a deck of cards that was published in the early '50s. I'll leave it at that. Anyway, uh, anyway, uh, what's funny if you watch the show, which uh, which I actually once I was sort of established in Hollywood, I sort of like used my resources to track down the videotape and get a DVD burned of it. I start out following the rules of acting like a real person. Like say right. yes, I'm a formal school teacher. But once I'm winning, I'm out of control and I'm acting the way I do now. I sort of take over the show. Like I'm it's amusing to see. Alright, so anyway, I win a car or a color T V in a stereo. I'm in LA now, remember I'm in LA. I came on Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Monday. I'm five days now I've got a car. So after we take the show, um, All of us winners and some of the losers. The losers get like some consolation prize, not all the deal. We all go out to celebrate, and we're you know out in a we're out in a restaurant and a bar. And I come home like one o'clock in the morning, and my aunt's in her bathrobe waiting up for me, like I'm in high school. And I go, what's up? What's going on? Says this guy called, and he said to call him back no matter how late the hour. So I call the guy back, and it's this agent. He says, I read your stuff. I think it's fantastic. You're absolutely going to be able to get work in Hollywood. And in fact, I took the liberty of giving your two scripts to a, another client of mine. So I said, well, I would love to get advice from another writer. It would be very valuable for me to learn some, you know, tricks of the trade. Yeah, <laughs> no, most um, definitely. No, no, I, I don't mean for that. We represent writers, producers, directors, actors. And this client is a producer of The Six Million Dollar Man. And they're having a very hard time finding. Oh people who can write that show because it's a strange combination of science fiction and crime fighting. And so writers come in who maybe worked on Hawaii Five O, and they say, here's my idea for the $6 million man. Uh, the drug dealers are escaping on an airplane and he flies up to the plane and he grabs it. They'll hold it right there. He can't fly. Well, he has to fly for my story to work. Well, you can't just pull that out of your ass. You have to stick with the limit. Right. Idea. Right. So they don't get it. And on the other hand, the people who come from science fiction shows, maybe like Star Trek, they say, "Okay, he uses his bionic eye to look through the window, and he sees the these the uh, the uh, the numbers of the Swiss bank account." And they go, "No." And then they arrest him. He says, "No, he can't go. He's got to get a warrant, and he can't go to the judge and say, I used my bionic eye to look in the window.' Right? He's got to like, do the detective right. work. But your crime thriller." And your science fiction script, they realize you get both hands in this equation, and you'll be able to like work on this show. So I I made an appointment for you tomorrow to go to the interview with Hart Bennett, the executive producer of The Six Million Dollar Man. He later did the Star Trek movies. Oh, wow, that's awesome. So they have a new show they're planning, which is called The Gemini Man, which is sort of like the bionic shows, but the guy's power is he can turn invisible. So they are they are going to, they have, they have delivered the pilot script to your aunt's house. Read it and be prepared to talk about ideas for The Six Million Dollar Man, but also in particular this show, The Gemini Man. Uh, so um, I go the next day to Universal Studios. This is Friday. I came Saturday. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's my sixth day in Hollywood.
0: I go to Universal
1: Studios and I go to a meeting and it's Harp Bennett. Uh, and Leslie Stevens, who did Outer Limits, who was also in this unit. Oh, uh, wow, Outer Limits. Uh, okay. And um, uh, Alan Walter, who was a, one of the producers of Men Man, and Frank Jelford. These are the, all, all long careers from Hollywood. So um, they asked me a few questions, you know, and, and, and they uh, say, okay, uh, we really liked your scripts a lot. Uh, and uh, what, how, how would you approach this uh, Gemini Man? Now, to back this up, the same group of people the previous year had done the Invisible Man for a different network, uh, with David McCallum. And they were, uh, they followed the, the model of the H.G. Wells Invisible Man, uh, which was problematic in the execution of the series because he was wearing like a Mission Impossible rubber mask, right? And then he would like to go, t- he would take off the rubber mask and take off his clothes and be invisible, but then he would have to steal clothes and go back and get his rubber mask. So it became very clunky storytelling. And it got canceled after six episodes. So they said, okay, we're, we're taking that idea a new way. This guy is, uh, instead of being a spy, he's a rogue. He wears a motorcycle. He wears denim. He's cool-hit-happening, you know, 70s guy. Right. He, he's a uh, government agent, and he's trying to defuse a nuclear bomb on a submarine. It's a new kind of nuclear bomb. You know, Unobtainium, un- 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 something like, you know, uh, Avatar. Uh, and the radiation uh, is is going to kill him uh, by making uh, all of his cells invisible, and then they'll melt. But at the last huh. minute, they realize that if they do reverse radiation, it reverses it, and his cells stop devolving, and you can see him again. And then they realize if they can miniaturize this gizmo on his wrist that uh, gives off the good radiation, it maintains his visibility, and he can turn it off and turn invisible, but if he turns it off for more than 10 minutes, he dies. So now he has a weakness. This was, you know, I think they overthought this, but that's the premise of it. Sounds more like a comic book than a TV show. Yeah. So what are your ideas for this show? So, you know, I, my, my way of working is to reverse engineer things. Uh, so I said, okay, here's one. Uh, they got to remember this is the 70s. Uh, so all the bad guys are commies, you know, on most of these shows that are spy shows. Right. So I said, okay, here's an idea. We do a rip-off of, uh, Notorious, the Hitchcock movie. Remember, where Cary Grant is like working with this female agent who's in great danger, uh, who's dating the, the, the Nazi spy, Claude Rains, who's a mama's boy, and the mother is really the leader of the spy. The, race. the leader, yeah. So it's the same story only their they're commies, not Nazis. He sneaks into the house to eavesdrop on the spies. They're planning to be- walk well, Mount Rushmore, whatever it is. And the mother comes in, and she turns to our hero, who's invisible, and says, Can I get you a beverage, Mr. Casey? Because she's blind. So as far as she's concerned, it's just another commie in the meeting.
0: And they go, ooh, ooh, yeah,
1: ooh, we like that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I say, here's another one. Um, another episode, where he's fighting a different group of commies. Uh They're, you know, putting a nuclear bomb on a train. Uh, he's fighting them, he's holding his own, fighting three guys at once. One guy comes behind him, hits him on the head, knocks him out. He falls down. As he falls, his watch hits the track of the railroad. The button is pushed, he turns invisible, and then the conductor says, all aboard, and the train starts up, he's flying on the tracks. So they go crazy, and Hart Bennett jumps up, he grabs me, and, and practically kisses me. It says, finally, somebody who gets it, who knows that you got to get the hero in a pickle, when you have a super hit. Right. he's got to have a grip tonight, this kid gets it. And they say, all right, Steve, go see uh, Betty about uh, parking. So I go... Oh, my aunt dropped me off, and I'm going to call her. she pick me up. You're going to have to validate my parking. And they all ho oh, ho. no, no, we mean your permanent parking space. You're starting here Monday at Universal Studios, working wow. at the, on the Bionic. So uh, that was, uh, and this was sort of such a crazy, hectic week that uh, I was in Variety for the first time. The following week, a little article how, you know, you know, somebody being discovered overnight, you know. Only in this, right. case, this case, not an actress in a sweater at a mall job but, you know, uh, a a writer. So that is the uh, very convoluted story of how I came to Hollywood. That's
0: amazing, though. I mean, you said you gave yourself 90 days, and even I was like, man, three months
1: isn't enough, and then it's it's like... Yes, usually It took a week. (laughs) Well, well, again, they do say that, like, you know, uh, it's a combination of uh, of luck and preparation. Timing, luck, and preparation. And if you go with the... um, uh, I forget the author wrote the book. Uh, uh, I can't think of his name now, but uh, um, it basically said you need 10 years to like get good at anything, right? Yeah, it was a 10 years of 10,000 hours and you'd be you right. master or anything. Considering yeah. the fact that I sold my first professional piece when I was nine people, this was like almost 10 years. Well, there you go. So, so it proves it. <laughs>
0: yeah, like I was looking through, and for me, I mean, I was born...
1: Uh, very early in the '80s. So, do not tell me you had Night Rider underoos. I'm tired of meeting with people. Oh, I had the underoos and the car. <laughs> you know what? Underoos were a little bit before me. Okay. Um,
0: but I did have a Night Rider big wheel. So you know, it didn't it didn't have any of the, the bells and whistles
1: like the kids' toys do. But it did have the the light on the front. If you still have it and you'll pay the shipping, I'll autograph it for you. Um,
0: <laughs> no.
1: I'll, dude,
0: okay. So, I mean, I, I'm in Georgia. I'm originally from Boston. Okay. And uh, I think I lost more of the 80s into a dumpster when my parents moved after I'd left than uh, most kids had.
1: Well, um, you, could you, probably, have, you could probably find it on eBay or something, you know.
0: Yeah. But, like, I mean, I remember, I mean, Knight Rider and and... and you know, all that stuff. But um, I saw the, the Die Hard, and, you know, that was one of my first... Um, I had very, um, not religious, but strict parents. They they believed that uh, R-rated movies weren't for kids, and there was a reason they okay. were rated that way. So there were few that if my dad liked them enough...
1: Yeah. Oh, then that, he
0: would that Yeah, that I would get the pass, because he'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll watch them with you. So, like, a lot of... A lot of the movies you did in the late 80s and early 90s, those were like my first big action movies. And, I mean, you know, who doesn't love Die Hard today? But, I mean, I you know, I, I see young kids that are like, oh, yeah, Die Hard, and da-da-da. I'm like, you no. Shush. <laughs> Shush, youngin'. You have no idea what those movies meant for some of us when they came out.
1: Well, anyway, uh, to, 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 to make the rest of the story shorter... Uh, I worked my way up the food chain at Universal Studios from a story editor on the Bionic shows to the uh, showrunner and producer of Knight Rider. And then Paramount said, my contract was up, and as I was negotiating a new contract with Universal, Paramount said, come over here and we'll get you in the movie business. So I went over to Paramount and I did a couple of pilots right away, uh, most notably, uh, one called, uh, The Renegades. Which was the like, Renegades, yeah. That was Pat, one of Patrick Swayze's first jobs, and that was like, that was like, uh, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, what was the with their undercover cops? Uh, we, we just made two movies out out of, out of them. I was uh, going to
0: say, did you ever um, did you ever accuse the guys at Twenty One Jump Street oh. of ripping off your idea? It was like Twenty One Jump Street uh,
1: uh, before Twenty One Jump Street. It That's was, what I mean. Yeah. So uh, and then uh, the same people I did that for, uh, and that was done under the gun. It was like uh, they sort of sold the show before they had a script, and they had a start mm. date, and the network put it on the schedule. Because it was Aaron Spelling who could sell the phone book, and they didn't really have a script, so I had to write the script in like like an insane like tidy window of time. Um, and they were so happy with that that same producer was Larry Gordon and Joel Silver. It was his fir- Joel Silver's first producing credit was on that Renegades TV show. He'd worked for Larry and uh, as an assistant. Uh, they said, "Listen, we have this other script uh, that needs a rewrite. We're trying to make for years, which was Forty Eight Hours. Um, and that script original was a much much straighter script." The script had been around so long that the original casting idea was going to be that the middle-aged, burned-out cop was going to be uh, Robert Mitchum, and the young criminal in jail was going to be Clint Eastwood. That's how long the script had been around. Jeez Louise. Because Larry Gordon like always shoots when he develops. A lot of people throw a lot of crap on the wall, but he he eventually makes stuff, but it can take a while. Uh, So um, just before uh, I came aboard, they had decided they wanted to make the... uh, uh, the, the criminal Black, and in fact, the script they gave me, this is before computers, I mean, I people had computers, but not most people. Yeah, I know what you mean. So they had, like, used Whiteout to just change the description of that character, and they sort of, Black was a different font, and it was jammed in, you know, like, but that was the extent of, like, you know, making the guy African-American. Uh, so uh, there was a story going around Hollywood for a while that I rewrote that existing script in 48 hours, which is preposterous, but what I did do was they gave it to me on a Friday, and I came in on Monday with a bunch of ideas like of how to make it funny and to reinvent it so like one right. example would be in the script that was given to me um they had to go into a tough bar to get some information but the script that was given to me it was a bar in a black neighborhood and the Eddie Murphy character the character Jimmy Murphy said you can't get information from the brothers but I can so I so when I go on Monday I go where's the fun in that that's like how, I gotta bet what if it's a redneck bar and the cop makes him go in there Right? That's, See, that's right. And they, so he says, yeah, but if a bar like that in San Francisco would be a gay bar. And I go, well, you know that and I know that, but the rest of America doesn't know that. Uh, another example was uh, they were looking for um, this money that, that, that had disappeared. And the money was in the state deposit box. And I go, well, that's been in a million movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me tell you a story from my own experience where a buddy, of my a friend of mine, said, pick up my car, uh, I'm flying in. And it was in this storage place with elevators and stuff, which I'd never seen before. That's more, So that, so. I had a lot of things that were Oh, just, wow, yeah. Yeah, so, and, and it went beyond that. Uh, in the original script, at the opening of the picture, he said, um, "This guy, these guys broke out of a prison break uh, of a chain gang, uh, and uh, uh, we know that when they robbed the drug dealers like five years ago, uh, they got drugs and a million dollars, and we want to find out where that is. So I said it'd be more interesting if they didn't know that a million dollars, that they only thought they got drugs. And that's what Eddie Murphy's doing, is he's keeping that a secret, trying to use the cop to help him round up it so he can get the money. And then there's something to find out. There's an onion to unpeel. So uh, that's how that that got me on that movie. Uh, And uh, I I did a rewrite, Was funny on that, uh, they said, okay, they're going to let you rewrite this movie. And I said to my agent, the same agent, well, how much do I get paid to, to rewrite this movie? And he says, nothing. I mean, what do you mean nothing? He says, you have a contract with Paramount Pictures. They pay you every week. They hire you away from Universal. Oh. I don't have to pay you anything. And I go, oh, well, that's uh, that's not good. He says, aha, that's what they are saying. But I happen to I happen to know that your contract was hired as a writer-producer in television. And this is a feature film. So I've checked with the Writers Guild. They've got to pay you something. So it turned out they paid me, because uh, it was my first Hollywood credit as a screenwriter, they paid me the Writers Guild minimum in 1982 for a rewrite. Which is the awesome sum of thirty five thousand dollars, but wow. you know it was my first. It was my first movie credit, and it led to so many others.
0: That that, I mean, that's still though like thirty five thousand. That's. You're also talking to a guy who works forty hours a week for nineteen <laughs> something an hour, so well, that's amazing. Saying, you know,
1: people hear about these Hollywood numbers. You know, I'm just saying. Oh know, yeah, like,
0: we're yeah we're oh yeah, this guy owns like eighteen houses and that, yeah yeah. But I mean, I mean, so I mean, anybody can see all, all the stuff you've done, and it's it's all of it's amazing. Um, I was gonna say how how much have you seen things change o- over the years as political climates come and go as as things come and go? Is it still easy to to write something or are there so many more things to be conscious about that you know I, I think with almost like what we opened up with talking about you having that encounter with the guy on Twitter, me having the encounter in the comic book, with people being so almost overly sensitive, is it still easy? to write for people or is there like so much stuff to take into consideration well is-
1: I, I would say that that that, that uh, uh, there's there's a two part question I would t- say today if I were trying to break into uh, Hollywood uh, I would not sit down and write two spec scripts I would make short films people are being discovered now who make a short film and put it on Vimeo and they get like, like not that this is tra- an amazing uh, uh, milestone of motion pictures but Pixels was a 10 minute film and right. saw it, and they got a deal to write a whole screenplay. Then, then a professional writer rewrote it, and so forth. And on. Uh, the movie—I'm uh, not picking too many examples that weren't successful movies. Uh, the movie um, was it called uh, Captain some, Captain Tomorrow in the World Captain Future in the World of Tomorrow? Remember that movie? that was one of the first digital movies with uh, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and, and uh, Oh yeah, I know what you're talking and, about. And, and the dirigibles and stuff. Uh, the guy that made that was literally living in his parents house and he made the 10 minute opening where the where the docks on the empire state building uh, and he got the the job to to like write and direct you know the motion picture so this is the way people seem to be getting discovered now and whether you're behind the scenes talent or whether on the like Justin Bieber was discovered on YouTube his mother put is yeah you know Right, so the, these these outlets did not exist then, and I would rec- I would say this is the way to go because people are lazy. It's hard to get a script to somebody. Uh, the script readers uh, are overwhelmed. Uh, you know, if you try to get a to an agent like I did, it's going to get read by a reader, not the agent. The readers are instructed to give it ten pages and then toss it away because they got fifteen scripts to read. You know, every weekend. So uh, right. so, and that's just the agency before you even get it to the studio. But everybody's got five minutes to look at a video clip. As far as to, uh, has the political climate changed uh, the content of things? Uh, I don't see that so much. But what has changed things is the global market. That okay. things are being made now with an eye to the international market. So you have an example where this last uh, uh, Transformers movie, like underperformed, compared to all the other Transformers movies, but it's like enormous overseas. Uh, people are saying, well, the money... The Tom Cruise movie was kind of like a very poor performance for a Tom Cruise picture. Uh, maybe because it's not really a Tom Cruise movie. It's a, you know, you know that maybe that was a bad fit. Uh, but overseas right. it's gigantic. So this does affect uh, some of the movies that get made and certain con- certain material that might be too intimate or too small or too American is not getting made by the major studios. And this is where the independent Sundance type pictures are uh, are, are filling in. You're, you're- Gotcha. Yeah,
0: that. Yeah, that, that's what I meant. Like, seeing as how, how so many different climates have changed, you know, I'm, not climate change, but like, you know, uh, with, with the onset of of digital entertainment being so readily available to everybody and anybody being able to be a content creator, and that's yeah. So you addressed it perfectly. What I meant by that, with how much everything's changed since you started to what it is today.
1: I understand that. Uh it was my understanding that Commando was the first American picture that made more money overseas than in the US. What? I love Commando. <laughs> so, that, so that that so that, so that was one, that was my uh, my second Hollywood picture and that really was a turning point in show business and it got so crazy that when they did the Superman Returns movie uh there's a line in the movie where um uh the prairie white character Says well, Superman stands for you know all those good things like truth, justice, and the and then somebody knocks on the door, Chief. Uh, they want so he didn't say American way, right? They, they, but they interrupted him, because they went, you're right. And then Captain America, they called the first Avenger overseas.
0: Yes, and, and I think I think it was it was what the it was the the byline. For here, because it was yeah. Captain America, but then underneath it was the first Avenger. It there was
1: the first Avenger, Captain America, yeah.
0: Yeah, see, over here it was Captain America, but it was yeah, yeah. the first Avenger underneath. But, um, yeah, man, I mean, I was going to nerd out all over you on the stuff you've done, because Die Hard and Die Hard 2 are amazing. Uh, Tales from the Crypt, I heard they're bringing that back That. That was.
1: That's, it's not coming back now. It, it fell apart. The rights were. were oh rough. no, that yeah, sucks. Like, well, it, they, maybe it's not an oh no because uh, you know they were uh, they were what they were talking about doing was doing something like American Horror Story that each season would be one thing, and that's almost contrary. Gotcha. To, that's contrary to what the original comic books were. You know, right, were, yeah,
0: because because the HBO show was based off of the you know the monthly or biweekly issues of the book,
1: so it was yes, always but different. When Yeah, but when it was a comic book, forget that it was scary. As a comic book, it wasn't like Batman or Superman with continuing characters and continuing villain themes and ongoing story arcs. It was an anthology. Yeah, it was a new story each time you opened a book. As soon as you say it's not an anthology, you know, like you're sort of fighting the original, the original. Right. Uh. I I would. I would. I I, the episode I did, my wife and I both worked on uh, Tales from the Crypt. Uh, in fact, uh, she was uh, the inventor of... The c- Crypt Keeper was in the comic book. But in her episode, she was the first person to have the Crypt Keeper do a, uh, a a shtick related to that episode. And so that was before... Oh, we were wow, yeah. It, it was one of the first six scripts written for the series. So when when, when we turned that in, uh, Joel Silverland created that idea, and they retrofitted that idea to all the other episodes. So if there'd be an episode that was like... Uh, uh you know uh about gold uh, gold miners he would have like a helmet lamp and, and, you know and, and like be and 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 a pick and a canary in a cage you know whatever Oh, wow.
0: so she invented the, the super thief. funny opening monologues that well, he would do well
1: you know the, he would, in the comic book the, the, they would have a drawing of the Crypt keeper looked nothing like the, this guy it was just a guy yeah with, it looked i almost looked like a, it almost looked like the witch from snow white exactly yeah almost uh, yeah and then and just say today's story, but it, it was it, it was always standing in front of a tomb, and it was always the same. So the idea right. that there's that there's a comedy bit that's related to the content. But anyway, the episode I did, I, I'm pleased to see, is on everybody's top ten list, and usually in the top three, which is called "Carrying Death" with Comic McLaughlin. But there's a great story I can tell you about making that, which uh, shows the advantage of being a writer, a director. Um, this we got. This is one of the few ones that's filmed on location. And the idea is he's a bank robber. He escapes in the desert. He's running to Mexico. It takes place in a vaguely period setting. It like seems to be like the, like, you know, maybe the 80s, 50s, early 60s. And he's being yes. by a highway patrolman. Uh, he has a running gunfight with the highway patrolman and both the car and the motorcycle wreck. He runs off on foot thinking the cop is dead, but the cop is alive and follows him. And it's an ongoing chase through the desert and a vulture is following them both to see who will die first, who the vulture will then eat. Anyway, I remember that episode, yes. Okay, all right, okay, so anyway, we're filming this thing, and as it turns out, as we're filming it, the wind starts coming up, and the first AD says, "Looking at got a weather report, there's a storm coming, it's going to be a sandstorm, we're going to have to wrap and run back to the hotel. And I go, oh, well, let's film a little more. And now the wind's blowing, and the sand is like, you know, we can't even start to see, we're, and we're putting bandanas on our faces. He said, what are we going to do? And I said, tell Kyle, put on a bandana right? And we're going to film. So I filmed until we literally could not see. And they go, but the sandstorm's not in the script. And I go, it is now. There so you go. That night from the hotel, I called the studio and I said, tomorrow, send a truck out with all of the big fans you have. Because they have these big fans, or aircraft propellers, if yeah. a windstorm or something. So they bring the fans out. So the next day, which is a nice, sunny, clear day, I added a line to the script where Conor McLaughlin looks off of the horizon and goes, Boy, it looks like a storm is a storm is coming, and then of course in the editing room I made that earlier in the story before the storm actually happens, and then using right. then using the fans I showed the storm beginning, so I had like a road sign fall over, and I had sand blow over a uh, a cow skull to like show the storm getting bigger and bigger. So I got production values that HBO never. If I wrote the script and said the sandstorm. They go, this isn't a feature, D'Souza. It's a television episode. We can't afford a sandstorm. So you're able to punch sometimes if you have this right of creative control. That's awesome,
0: though. <laughs> like, well, it's my story, so we're going to modify it this way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we're doing it. Um, I, I am very much a cartoon aficionado uh much to the chagrin of my wife when I start pulling up old stuff and she's just like, oh for God's sake like cause she, m- my, my wife's older than me so a lot of that stuff she was it was too old for her when it came out uh-huh. so to see me as a thirty six year old man be like oh yeah I'm gonna watch da 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 you could just see the it's just like
1: like it's just like the president of France like you married your like high school teacher like back not <laughs> that that kind of not, not, yeah not, not, she's She's nine years older than me, so she's a '70s kid, and no, I'm that's, an '80s that, that's kid. Nothing. I, I think uh, I think there's like a, 20 years with, with uh, Macron in France or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I was going to say you you uh, were the you were like one either the creator or one of the creators for Cadillacs
1: and Dinosaurs, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in the television, look, the creator is Mark Schultz, who did a wonderful comic book. But in television terms, because I wrote the pilot, uh, I got the rights from Mark. And, uh, and tell us in terms, of I'm the creator of the TV series, but, you know, all, all, all homage to, uh, Mark, who did a great, and and did this book in the tradition of the great comic artists of, of the, uh, 30s and 40s, uh, uh, like, uh, the people, like, he, he, he's channeling, uh, uh, the guy who did Tarzan, he's channeling, uh, uh, Flash Gordon, uh, and it's a wonderful retro look, which we tried to keep on the comic. Like the Max Fleischer look, kind of? Uh, no, I would say Fleischer, and he was really copying, uh, uh, the, uh, the artist who did the, uh, Sunday newspaper strips. Uh, like, uh, Alex Raymond, who did Flash Gordon. If you look up the yeah. article, you know, Alex Raymond and Flash Gordon. And, uh, I can't think of the name of the guy that did Tarzan, uh, uh comics in the newspapers, Sunday newspapers. But he's also a great influence on Mark Schultz as well. Um, and we tried to maintain that on the comic book at great expense for Saturday morning animation. We did multiplane cameras. So, like, if the truck would, if you'd see a car driving, the, uh, the the trees in the background would go by at a different pace
0: than the background.
1: That's probably what makes you think of Fleischer. Fleischer was doing that uh, in his cartoons. We took it so literally that if we did a close-up on somebody on on the animated show, you would see dots like Roy Lichtenstein. You know, it was very subtle, but we did that. Yeah, I actually... um,
0: I think I may have actually had some of the toys from that show as well. I was... They're, they're, I was huge into cartoons, and I, my dad wasn't big on seeing us sit around, so I got a paper route starting at eight years old. So I always had pocket oh, money at the end of the week. So, you know, I had all the Thundercats. I, I had I, all the Ninja Turtles in.
1: Uh, Sir? Great. I didn't do the paper route. What I did was, uh, at Christmas time, I would go around to shops. You know, a lot of shops will put, like, uh, on the holidays. Uh, I don't know if it happens so much now, but a lot of time, um uh, different uh, stores on the storefront would paint like artwork on the inside of the glass. So yeah, I they still that. do that. I buy- yeah, I used to do that. I used to go to different shops and said, "I'll draw something on your window," and I made I uh, picked up a lot of money, at, like at Easter uh, and-, and Thanksgiving and Christmas, playing tur- turkeys like on the inside of like grocery stores and things like that. That was that was a, that was instead of, uh, of a pa- paper route for me. Now Cadillacs and dinosaurs. Uh, I really, took, uh, I really tried to, to like, be consistent with the message of the show, which had kind of a message about you know, the ecology and the environment and stuff yeah. like, like that. So we we're, were tooling along pretty well, but um, the other network put Power Rangers opposite us. So about or after around six or seven episodes, uh, CBS called me in for a meeting, and they said, listen, uh, we're getting killed by Power Rangers, so we want you to add, I want you to add teenagers and robots to the show. So I go, listen, you know, I, you know, I promised Mark Schultz that I'd be consistent to a show. Um, you know, we, we you right. know, I, I, w- I don't want to break that promise. Uh, we're getting wonderful reviews for this show, which is rare for a Saturday morning show. People are t- for complimenting us. And besides, the, you know, the, uh, the lead time on animation is so much that, like, you know, well, maybe if I, if I did it, we wouldn't even get the robots and the teenagers into like the last two episodes. So I have to say no. Well, all right, Steve, we're thanking for protecting the integrity of your show. So I'm leaving and I, my car literally gets out of the parking lot. Like the underground, as soon as I can get a phone signal, I get a phone call from my agent. Uh, you were just at CBS, and he said, "Yes." Uh, how did you know? He says, "Because they just called, and you're fired." And I go, "Wait a minute! They can't fire from that, from my own show." He says, "Well, they can as long as they pay you." So the good news is you're getting paid for the balance of the episodes, but your services are no longer required. So, but at this time the scripts are already in the pipeline, you know. So, right, the last, exactly. I think the, I think they, I think they shoehorn on robots into the last two. But I mean
0: I I'm just saying as a kid I remember it fondly so thank you for bringing it to the market you know
1: even though it didn't be- end well for for me it it was wonderful If you still have the toys, send it to me and I'll, write, I'll I'll autograph the bottom of one of their foot like Andy you know like Andy in Toy Story I'll put, I'll yeah. write my name on the bottom of, of one of the <laughs> one of the characters that That's awesome and then um I don't know if if if, if people
0: understand but you you did comic book movie before the advent of the comic book movie. I mean, you know, a, a, as a comic book nerd growing up for me, once in a while, a studio would take a risk on a title. You know, I mean, you always had, 89, you had your Batmans and, and this and that. And, but, but it was always, it was always, you either got a Superman movie or a Batman movie. And, you know, there was this whole world of comic books out there, but you brought us Judge Dredd. So, I mean, and that was a book that I had collected that wasn't in the mainstream. So, when I saw that Judge Dredd was being made a movie, whatever critics want to say about it, screw them because it was still an actual comic book movie being made when it wasn't the era of the comic book movie yet.
1: So, well, that was a frustrating experience for me because uh, uh, as soon as I got in there, I said, you can't, this can't be the costume. You cannot do this costume. You need to do a costume like. Like like uh, like like the Tim Burton Batman. It's got to be like armor. And the director was this English director, and he kept pulling, playing the English card. And I was the only person on the American team who even knew the comic book.
0: And I'm going right.
1: I, like, and he say, oh, he say, oh, the fans will revolt. The fans will revolt if you change the costume. And I go, it's it's ridiculous. I, I, I put putting it on that person. You know, it, it, it's so it makes no sense. It's 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 people. It's like it's like the wearing pajamas. You know, it's like it's like Batman sixty six. You want to do like Batman Tim Burton? Another thing this guy did is I noticed uh, the first thing I know is there was already existing script that had a lot of problems. So I'm doing like a page one rewrite, um, right? And I go so the first meeting I say, um, why is um, uh, you know the villain here is the ongoing good guy in the series? And they and the people, the executives of the studio, go. What are you talking about? I said this is like doing a Superman movie, and Perry White is the bad guy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> what you're doing here. So they go. Oh my God. We don't want to do that. So. Uh, so again, I'm a writer. I'm not in there every day. I'm over there starting meetings. So the director tells the at this time uh, the company. Uh, um, the company was uh, Caraco, right. So they were in financial difficulty. This movie was going to save them. So they were stretched kind of thin and they had no uh, uh, executive in England. They had a line producer but no executive with kind of authority, you know, to over the director. The only people that said that they were say no to the director were in LA. So he yeah. tells he tells he comes back and he tells the uh, executives of executive studio, he said we can't change Judge Griffin's name. It'll cost $60,000 to change all the signage in the movie. And they go, "Steve, we can't do that." And I'm going. This little this guy's lying because the signage in the movie is his name on the glass door, his name tag on his chest, and the thing on his desk. Right? How is that sixty thousand dollars? Yeah, he just made this number up so they wouldn't just because he had this obsession just to piss on the on the franchise that Perry White should be the bad guy. You know, at one point he said, "Well, they did that in the first Mission Impossible movie. They had they had Mr. Phelps." I said, "Yes," because they had had you know ten years of Mission Impossible, so that was a terrific mindfuck. But they didn't right. do the first episode, you know, you don't do the first one. Another thing he did, I go in there, and he says, uh, I say, why is the prison an Aspen? And he says, well, I thought a bit of a lark, you know, all these Hollywood people, you know, Aspen, Aspen, going off my house in Aspen, pretty funny, it should be a prison in the future. And I go, yeah, but it's established in the comic book, the prison is on Titan. Titan. Right? Saturn. I said, so, uh, uh, why are we changing it? So, I again, I would go, I'm right here around the corner from the uh, the studio, so I'd go to uh, 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 Mario Cassar and Andy Vania and say, this is, just, this is just a fuck you to the audience. You know, and like, you got a picture of the only exterior of the prison is a shot of like some kind of canyon, like with like, you know, a canyon right. with snow blowing in front of it, and it says, Aspen Prison, if you say, Titan Prison, Moon of Jupiter, it's the same thing. The shot works, right? And then this guy says the same thing to them. He says all the signage on the set. They've never even been to the set. Uh, and there's no signage in the movie. So he like, he would make up this stuff. The most famous example of this. That's uh-huh. ridiculous. My most favorite part of this thing is um, uh, the pictures over budget. And they say, Steve, you know, we know you, you know, they, people say, because I've been a television producer, I sort of understand things to do with a pencil that don't hurt the movie. Right. So I say, listen, you can save a considerable amount of money. There's a scene in the picture where uh, Armand DeSante goes to a pawn shop to get uh, to get something that is there for him, and it's simply his, like, you know, his gun. Right, his, like, judge and judge badge. And he gets a robot from the, the pawn shop with a pencil when he escapes from prison, right? Let him take a gun from the prison and reprogram one of the prison robot guards. And you can drop that scene entirely. And they say, we're doing that. And the director's there. He says, but, but, no buts. I've had it with this. I've had it with these arguments. No buts. We are doing this. Conversation is over. Steve made those changes. The guy gets on a plane, he goes to England. The minute he lands, he has a production meeting. He says, the production schedule is changing. The first thing we're shooting is the pawn shop. So he, he calls, he makes that phone call Sunday night. Monday morning, they start building the pawn shop set. It isn't until the end of the day Monday that a fax comes with my revised pages. With the time difference, Tuesday, they call the studio and they say, we already started building the set. You want us to tear it down, right? And it will it, it'll be a waste of right, so this guy deliberately did this. Right. Wow. Like right, like like to get but where it got carried away after I finished That's
0: some petty horse manure right there. It got
1: worse. After 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 I turned in my script, he was he was like so uh yeah, I think it was a Napoleonic complex. You know, like right. people say what what's your best advice for a screenwriter? Where wear Because all the writers are taller than the producers and directors. Uh, So anyway, um, uh, yeah. Uh, So uh, anyway, he uh, uh, um, he he, uh, says the script is shit. I need to rewrite it myself, and he makes to make a deal with him to rewrite the script. And all he does is tinker with enough to make it a little more stupider. But the one mistake he he made, (laughs) he gave so many interviews before the picture came out on how he had to finally roll up his sleeves and rewrite the script. That when it came out and didn't do well, he couldn't blame me. Normally, a director can say I had a lousy script, but he took so much credit for rewriting the script, he 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 couldn't take that that avenue. Uh,
0: uh right. And uh, oh,
1: uh, are, are you are you getting told you to know, wrap up? Yeah, if you want to know how petty it is, uh, uh in if you want to know how petty it was, there's a scene in the movie where where Stallone stops a drunk driver in a flying car. Yeah, remember, he changed the guy's name to D'Souza. If you look at the movie again. He shows his license, and Sly says, well, Mr. Souza, I don't care if your aunt is on the Supreme Council. This is your third violation. So that was like, that That was just like, I guess his revenge. Wow. Oh, he's okay. so clever. Yeah. I bet he's fun at parties. All right. But anyway, like, believe me, you know, like, you know, you know what, if you want, I'll send you a, I'll send you a PDF of my script. It'll make you cry what it could have been. Oh, my gosh! please, yes, and it would stay with just me, but I would read the crap out of that, okay, but it like it uh another thing I had that was in there is uh and I was and again i i had I almost had the studio convinced to do this, and this guy said this my vision is dark, my vision is this is like Spartacus that he's he says absolutely not i will i will I will not you're not doing that. I wanted the computer to be an asshole, you know the computer at yeah. home. And the computer like fucks everybody. I'm sorry, those things don't match. And I wanted to get Phil Hartman to be the voice of the computer. Oh my God, that would have been amazing. And, 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 but, 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 but talking in a more mechanical way, you know, uh, talking in a more mechanical way, of course, you know. But but yeah, but still like Jervis with a bad attitude. Exactly, that was the idea. So, uh, but 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 uh, here, but here's the payoff here. Okay, uh, I get a phone call from uh, Andy Bonia, who says, "Steve, you want to come over and look at some dailies." You know, we got some dailies of one of the first sequences we've shot, and I said, "Okay." So I live around the corner. I jump on my bicycle. When you go to these meetings in Hollywood, uh, most most of the studios are not. Most of the production companies aren't on the lot anymore. They're like in right. San Juan. So, like, I ride my bicycle, and, and everyone talks about how green they are. I take my bicycle clip off, you know. So coming on the bicycle. So you know, key and S. Queen uh, key and S. We Macho it's Queen S. Me 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 Verde. So I, I I'm, I'm I have the bicycle clips. I win that argument. So I go over, <laughs> and, and he puts up the sequence where the reporter gets killed. Now, yeah. I, I, when I came in here, they said, we want to make a PG-13 movie. It's based on a comic book, PG-13 movie. And I, I did television, you know. Uh, you used to be able to set your watch. Uh, and the, when I was doing Knight Rider, the bionic shows, there was a thing called the family hour, and the rule was that you could not have too many violent stuff that the kids were in bed. So if you have, to this day, if you watch a rerun, uh, the Six Million Dollar Man or Knight Rider, and you get to a scene where somebody says, "All right, boss, I blew that Michael Knight guy off. They have no idea what we're up to. Uh, just you and I know about the drugs." Boss, what are you doing? Put away that gun. I told you, what. bang. Eight thirty-one. The assumption was all the children were in bed at promptly at eight thirty, so he, huh. you couldn't kill anybody at eight thirty-one. So I know how to do PG thirteen. So anyway, that's in an sp-
0: interesting insider bit.
1: Yeah, uh, so anyway, so in the script, I write that, uh, I put in the script that the apartment, the reporter, it's like Walter Cronkite in the future, that his apartment will take your grandparents. Everything else is futuristic and chrome and aluminum. Right, but his is, yeah. People have shoulder pads, but he's wearing a cardigan sweater, and the wife is knitting a doily. It, you know, it looks like his yeah, like apartment now. jarringly different, yeah. And he says, uh, if he said, oh, you're taking a big risk. He says, no, 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 the people need to know the truth. And fortunately, there's one person we can count on, Judge Dredd, and he says Dredd because the door opens, and it's Armand Santi, right? In, right, Rico. In, yeah. yeah, right. And, and, then, and then I write in the script, the door kicks open, yeah. the guy raises his gun, and we cut outside the apartment building, and we see flashing a gunfire through the window. Right. Okay. So now I go over there to see the scene. I'm watching the scene, and then the guy kicks in the door, and then he kills these people like Bonnie and Clyde. In slow motion, this old couple getting all shot up, like getting hit with like you know fifty bullets each, and that the whole room is shot up, and like the end of
0: Reservoir Dogs in a PG thirteen movie.
1: Yeah, so my jaw drops and I go, Andy, Andy, this is this is going to totally fuck us. This is a PG thirteen movie, and he says, "Oh, our director's so smart. Run it again, again, again. Once is enough." He runs it again. He said, Did you see? Did you see? So it's like, this is like a a Manhunter. Did you see? Did you? I go, See what? He says, There was no blood. They're dry squibs. Dry squibs is PG 13. It's only if you show blood is it R. I said, There's no such rule. No. He's bullshitting you again. Now it gets worse. In the picture, I write, at a certain point, Judge Griffin, um, uh, the uh, German actor, um, uh, I forget his name. Uh, he, uh, finally realizes that Armand Asante is like out of his mind. He's da- he's uh, dangerous. The guy from Dust Booth. Uh, Jurgen uh, Pro, uh, Prochnow? Uh, pro- 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 Prochnow? Yeah. Jurgen Prochnow. Yeah. Yeah. He, he realizes it's out of control. He never wanted it to go this far. His his motivations were good, all that kind of thing. And he says, he says, Rico, it's gone too far. I'm putting an end to this. And Armand Asante says, Robot, I want you to kill Judge Griffin, pull his arms and legs off, and save his head for last, so I can hear him scream. And I write that the robot, lumber's off into the corner, and we, both Robot and Griffin, exit frame, and we see shadows on the wall, and hear screaming and horrible sound effects. That's what I write. The director, with the picture already spiraling out of control over budget, he has the same people who made the audio-animatronic robot, which was a wonderful effect, can controlled by like, you know, nine puppeteers off camera. Remember the robot movie was great? He has them make a perfect audio-animatronic, Jorgen Trunk now. And he shoots the robot, ripping its arms and legs and head off, on camera, with arterial blood squirting all over. He actually shoots this. Now they finish the movie. They They turn it into the Motion Picture Association of America. And the rating comes back, X, X, X. And now they lose their minds that like this is synergy and it's a release through Disney, through Hollywood films. So they recut the movie. They cut out everything they can that's gory and bloody, but there's no coverage, right? They turn it again, X. Second time. Now they're in a panic. You're only supposed to get three bites of the apple. They've got one more shot. They cut it again, X. The third time, you're done, that's it. You've got an X-rated movie. This is the end of Jack Valenti's uh, time as the head of the MPAA. And Ed Pressman's one of our producer. Uh, he had done a lot of serious arty movies. A member yeah. of the, you know, he's got the Legion of Honor from France. Somehow, he gets one more bite at the apple, and they rated R. They wanted PG. So now, guess what? They had a toy deal. The toys are missing. There's hundreds of thousands of toys on trucks ready to go to the toy stores. They had a deal with Burger King, a Happy Meal. You cannot advertise products to children for an R-rated movie. No, you can't. A hamburger company's right. So the hamburger company and the toy company sue Disney for like millions. All because
0: of an obstinate director being a jackass.
1: So so the studio they go crazy. And this little he says this son of a bitch. Let's sue him. We'll take it out of his hide. But this is Synergy, the movie. Uh, this is Columbia. This is, uh, 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 well, it became Synergy, but this, this time it's Carraco. They made all the Rambo movies and stuff. They never yeah. made, They never made a PG-13 movie in their life. They never gave the director the piece of paper. The contract says, I promise to deliver a PG-13 movie. So they could not even sue him. They could not even withhold his salary. They, they just had it. to take it. So now they're in a total panic. They have no toy deal. They have no hamburger deal. They don't know what to do. And, and Stallone says, listen, I've got a solution here. I know how to make this advertising campaign works. And he prevails, and they decide the advertising campaign for this comic book that was never a comic strip, it was a comic book. Should, no, it's comic book. That campaign should be cartoons. So if you remember, if you saw the newspaper ads or the signs on buses, it was the same campaign for, uh, for the Phantom. Like, smash evil, pow, bam, bang. The ads were pow, Bam Bang," and they had balloons with Stallone saying "Stop, stop, criminal." Yeah, stop. it was, it was of, stuff like "Obey
0: the law, I am the law."
1: Yeah, yeah but, but this was but it was black and white, as if it were as, as, as like a daily newspaper strip, like peanuts. Yep. So the ad campaign was was it was a color comic book, not a comic strip. The campaign was black and white panels with balloon dialogue that was cartoony. Halt. Well. You're going right, you know, that's the end of your career, criminal. And that was the ad campaign. Right. So it was an unbelievable disconnect. The the reviews were, were were brutal. Cut to the 21st century. Let me take you back to the dawn of the 21st century. Steve Cannell, the famous TV guy, yep. a guy who I knew from Universal Studios. We had adjoining offices. I never worked on his shows, but I knew him very well. We, you know, we... We'd see him, in, see him in the building, we'd see him in the commissary, we'd talk. Um, he calls me up and says, listen, uh, I, I you know, love the stuff you've been doing since we were over at Universal. Um, I, Disney wants to make a feature film out of The Greatest American Hero. Uh, oh my God, that would be amazing. Do you have any ideas? So I go, yeah, I love that show, let me come in and talk to you. So I go over to his office and I pitch him my idea, which was like a uh, like a like one big like crazy idea about uh, about the uh, 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 make it work, like to reinvent it. And he goes crazy. So this is fantastic. This makes it a movie. It makes it puts it beyond the TV show. We're going to go pitch it. So we go over to Disney and we pitch it to these executives. And this happened a few times in my life. Uh, I I sort of thought it out so well, and I sort of tell it so well for five minutes. I know I said when I was like eight years old, I wanted to be a comic book artist. But when I was 20 years old, I wanted to be a stand-up comic. So I do, this happened to me three or four times in a 30-year career. I pitch it so well that people in the room applaud when I get done. Right, And they go, all right, Steve, we're going to do this. It's great. Do you think we can, how soon can we have a script? Oh, that's great. That means we can have the movie in theaters next summer. wonderful, wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, so I leave, I leave, uh, uh, I leave, uh, Disney, which is in the valley. I'm driving back to my, uh, home in Civic Palisades. It's late, it's rush hour. It's like, you know, it takes me 45 minutes. I'm just about to get to my driveway. I get a call from Steve Cannell. He says, I don't know what happened. Everybody in the room loved it. They went upstairs to the top guys and they said, Steve D'Souza, are you kidding? That son of a bitch gave us an X rated movie. He'll never work on the Disney lot again. Oh no! So I got blamed for the judge dread. He says we got sued he says we got sued by Burger King. We got sued by the toy company. He's persona non grata. That so sucks, man. Yeah, so I said, it wasn't me now. now of course the cor- corporations don't have such good memory since then I've done work at Disney, but this was right, I, of course this was only like, you know, 5 or 6 years and uh, they remembered it. But I kept saying, hey, it's not my fault." It's just like recently the result and the 30-year anniversary of the running man and and yeah. people said, "Gee, fake news! A uh, game show, a, a reality show host is the uh, is is the uh, leader of the government. This is too close for comfort." And I had all these interviews. Uh, um, uh, Vice uh, interviewed me. It's online, uh, and I kept saying, "It's not my fault. It's just a movie. I didn't, I didn't, I, it's not my fault." Right. I mean, it was a. I mean, Stephen King wrote the story. You just adapted it to the. Well, you know? a lot of the things that, that a lot of the things that like struck struck a bell, like the fake news that was not in the you know a thing. Uh, if the, yeah, the, the, uh, in the book, uh, you know, Stephen King is writing the book, I guess, in 1980, 81, and maybe he didn't get much television up there. But the game show in the book is like a game show in the 50s. Have you ever seen the rerun of uh, of You Bet Your Life with uh, with uh, Groucho Marx? Like a girl comes out with a box, and you pick a card from the box, and that's your starting time to start running. You know? Right. It was like a really good show. And by the time he made this movie, the game shows have bells and whistles and stuff like that. Also on the game show, the show in the book, it lasts for a month. A month. Every day. Right. And the runners uh, are given a videotape camera and every day that they're alive, they have to make a videotape that they mail back to headquarters. Just like, you know, so like, you know, this is preposterous. Plus on the, in the book, the hunters, the, the, right, are anonymous people. So you're walking along, and a meter mate kills you. So you can't like fall in hate.
0: With, right, uh, I know. Yeah, um, I know what
1: you mean. Uh, also, in the game show, the host and the producer were two different people, and the, and the host was just not so much. So we can com- I combine them and to create the Dawson the Dawson character. So the, thi- right. the things that people are talking about that echo our reality now, I, I think mainly come from the movie more than Stephen King book. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: But, so, okay. So, b- 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 before we, we either get into another subject or wrap up, I do have to ask the question. No, I,
1: I'm sorry. I will not talk about any questions about my brief engagement to Zoe Saldana. She, we both agree we're not going <laughs> to we're we're talking about I'm sorry. So, we, we're not going there. <laughs>
0: no. any, now, anything else
1: I'll discuss? Um,
0: it's kind of a corny question. Uh, but it makes its way around the Internet every once in a while. And I definitely me and my friends are all movie nerds. So it, it's a way for me to definitively answer with confidence. And you're probably just going to laugh and be like, this guy's a geeky idiot. But um, I have to ask,
1: is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? Uh, I would say absolutely is a Christmas movie. Uh, yes, I win. Uh, it definitely is a Christmas movie. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, Christmas themes in it, uh, you know, sort of redemption and sacrifice and family and stuff like that. But, you know, it was one thing to sort of think I, you know, right again, I go, well, it's sort of Christmassy. And the reason it's Christmassy is because it had been Christmas in Joel Silver's uh, Lethal Weapon. And he said, that worked out. Let's do it again. Right. I mean, there there, there was, it wasn't like it will add themes. It will add subtext. It says, that worked out. Let's repeat it. That's why it's Christmas in Die Hard 2 as well. But, um, uh, it didn't strike me about how it would impact the audience to this degree as a Christmas movie until the first day I was on the set. And, like, it's all Christmas decoration, You know, like, it's like, you know, every, every moment of the movie, it, 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 it reminds me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Somebody, cool. so, Somebody did an interview with that. Somebody did, wrote an article last year that appeared somewhere arguing it was also a Hanukkah movie. Why not? No, because if you think about it, there's, um, there's like, um, there's like eight locks on the right instead of candles. Like like there's a miracle. There's like you have to get instead of like the candles laughing, There's a candle for each like night, and then there's all the safe locks. Um, were, the, the, the guy it was, the guy found a whole bunch of a whole bunch of things. wow yeah that's kind of crazy to liken the locks to like uh, also you have foreigners who've taken over your your home, which is the, remember uh. the 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 the, 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 uh, the Greeks have invaded uh, Israel. And, right, and taking it over. So here you have all foreigners taking over your, home, your homeland. Wow, yeah, he went way more meta than I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, so he called me, I go, well, I, okay, well, I'll run with that, you know, okay.
0: Yeah, but that's awesome. Okay, good, because I can look at my friends and be like, suck it, it's a Christmas movie, to, to the naysayers, and then I can be the champion of those of us who say it is.
1: Well, now you have a new thing. If you Google that, you may be able to find the article. article. So now, you, now you can really make your head spin. Oh, most definitely. I actually want to get in on that. I, I love when people
0: dissect things that much and find things that even the creators were like, wow, I didn't even,
1: okay. Like, yeah, that well, connection's there. I did, I did a movie that, that, uh, uh, that did not play, it only played two theaters in the U.S. Uh, it was a Showtime movie, but it did, very, it did so well overseas that uh, uh, a, French, uh, the, a French network sent a TV crew here to interview me about it, which was called Possessed. Uh, which was the true story that, that behind The Exorcist. Like, there yeah. actually was, there actually was a case that William Peter Blatty, when he was a, a going to school at Georgetown University, uh, which was, some of the events happened in, uh, in Maryland, and he, some of the priests, uh, had heard rumors about it, and the, and he turned that story into The Exorcist. So somebody wrote a nonfiction book about The Real Case, which he made a movie for Showtime, and my approach was it was more ambiguous. Like, maybe the kid was just mental, or maybe he was just, like... Uh, right. ...tension. Or maybe... Well, you don't know. I, I, so I, I did this movie that was on the fence, and what was interesting, there were some reviews that, like, did this, this like, deep dive into it, and some yeah. of them said, finally, a film that puts the lie to the silly nonsense that the devil is active and is an actual force of entity, and it's not and it's just that people are... And, and, and makes the, the, the determinate case that it's just mental illness. And at the same time, there are other reviews saying... Finally, a film that puts a lot of psychiatrists and shows that the devil is an active force in our world today. And I'm going to look at these, t- I go, well, I did something right. You know, if, if I squared the circle.
0: And- exactly.
1: <laughs>
0: I've got both sides of the sub of a okay. coin championing my movie for their own individual <laughs> cause. <Yeah>. But, uh, <laughs> So, tell me, uh let me know, how can people... um What's the best way for people to to reach you or to? Well,
1: I, 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 well reach. I, I, would, I, would, I have people like you know who want to send me scripts. Or like, so I, I would. Oh I, yeah. No, I, I don't I, mean it like that. I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, I, there I, we go. I, I, I'm always giving advice and recommending books. And uh, I talked to somebody the other day. They're talking about this. You know, I've talked. Like people say, you know, I have ten great treatments. What I should do? And I say, you shouldn't write treatments. You, you know, you you're, you're not going to get work in Hollywood writing treatments. Better to write one screenplay instead of you know ten treatments. Uh, somebody told me the other day how, how long is your script? And I said it's too long. It's it's it, it's silly. Uh, I go through this. I just turned a script in for a major star uh, the other day, and the script was 100 and 114 um, uh, pages and 140 pages and a half. The studio was screaming for the script, and the producer says, "I can't give a script this long for an action movie to my boss. Uh, can't you cheat with the margins with your computer? The last page is hundred is only you know." So then I made I I, I actually made some cuts. And I get it down to 111, but then he says, well, the 11th page, 111 page just says one paragraph. You can get rid of that. So, like, like they're screaming for the script, and I'm spending five days making it shorter, you know. It's silly, so I'm saying, you, you want some simple advice? Get your script and, you know, like, make it 105 pages. I can, right. There's a lot of practical advice I give to a lot of people on my Twitter feed. I can't, you know, make you talented, but I can make you smart. You know what I mean? Like, there you go. Like, like, wear flats if you're taller than the producers. So I have, a, I, I have a Twitter feed, Stephen E. D'Souza, my name just all run together, uh, and I mostly engage uh, uh, people uh, talking about that. I got sucked into politics and these people attacking me because, I, you know, there was the whole Julius Caesar thing, and I said, well, you know, the script is actually anti-assassination. That's the point of this, you know, and I suddenly get attacked by all these people, you know, you, you know, and I go, you know, did you have your red play, you know? So, like, so, so occasionally I get dragged into these political conversations, but I'm mainly talking about... Uh, you know about you know writing and filmmaking and uh, um, things like that. And uh, sometimes I'll see a uh, a lot of times I'll see a short film. I'm talking about Vimeo being a way in for people. And Most definitely. Uh, and sometimes people will say, "I have this film on Vimeo. Would you check it out?" And I like it, and I tell people to look at it. You know, so you know uh, maybe I maybe maybe some people have gotten you know some encouragement stuff like that. And I, I love doing that. I get a lot out of that. I've done seminars, uh, you know, at AFI and and you know even in Australia and Mumbai, India. Where I talk about with kind of a master's class and stuff like that. And I find that every time I articulate, you know, uh, things like this about storytelling and filmmaking, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it helps me. You know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I actually attended the thing at AFI, I guided the thing at AFI about my films, and I started taking notes saying, well, I never noticed that. I do do that in my films. There is a pattern. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and, and that's what I meant. Like, how can they find you on social media? Not how can they find you. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm <laughs> so yeah, definitely the Twitter. And then with the uh, with the book, is there a way for them to pre-order it, or is it just waiting for the release date the with, with, with the comic
1: book? Oh, oh, you, I, I think uh, I think the pre-orders are in for for for, for issue zero. Uh, it'll be it's going to be in August in all your uh, comic book stores. It's uh, Sheena Queen of the Jungle. It's issue zero. Uh, and then uh, there's also I think order I think in order number one I think it's too late to order issue zero because the pre-orders are in uh, but, okay. but it's going to be running every month for a while. Uh, however, if, if you're into we've done there's been three previous graphic novels which your comic book store will have already. There was Sheena okay, Queen, cool. Of, there was Sheena Queen of the Jungle one, Sheena Queen of the Jungle two, and then there was a great one called Lords of the Jungle where Sheena met Tarzan. I mean, I, I mean, forget Batman. meets Superman. We had Sheena meets Tarzan. That was published just last November.
0: Okay, cool. And, and people can get their hands on that now while they await for this for this new stuff coming out.
1: Yeah, and by the way, they're all in continuity too. So uh, you really you beautiful. Get, you can really immerse yourself. You start with the first one, all the way through. And like I said, I think that there may be uh, in you know within maybe a month or so, I think there may be uh, uh, some news about this becoming um, uh, you know a motion picture, uh, you know, based on. You know, this iteration of uh, this modern reboot of Sheena, which is quite, quite different from, uh, you know, the, the mid, from the one from the 1930s and 40s. Uh, another thing that, that your audience could look out for uh, is it'll be next year. Uh, I'm doing a 10-hour uh, mini series called Gulliver's Curse, uh, which is a, uh, oh. uh, a sort of a science fiction uh, fantasy approach to Gulliver's Travels. Uh, and other people say, well, you're taking a dark science fiction approach. But actually, the original material is very dark, very science fiction y, and has been mostly turned into a children's story in the Victorian era. They threw out, he goes to 10 imaginary lands in Japan. And in the Victorian era, they threw everything away except the Brahmin right, and, and the Lilliputians. Uh, so I was going to say, yeah, it's always the QT2 Lilliputians in every telling. To give an example, everybody remembers the Gullivers tied down by the Lilliputians, but do you know why? That's Jeopardy. Oh, no, yeah, exactly. It. Here's why they tie him down so they can blind him like Ulysses blinded the Cyclops and castrate him. And castrate, right. Because of, it's Godzilla. Everybody remembers vaguely that in the children's version, that a princess in the land of the giants makes him a little dollhouse and treats him like a pet. Right. But in the book, the princess is not a little girl like the drawing in your children's edition, she's a teenager. And she and her and her uh, uh, handmaidens take him into their boudoir, and they use him as a human dildo. Yes, they do. <laughs> this is this is it. Now, I, I, I'm not making this up. No, you're
0: not. I mean, it, it, Disney does it with every fairy tale they tell. If they actually told the Little Mermaid,
1: oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I
0: don't think little kids would be lining up to be Ariel well, well, when I, they're like, okay, so every time she walked, it felt like broken glass and she yeah, screamed right, bloody not. murder.
1: But, but but Swift wasn't writing a fairy tale. He was writing a parody of politics and mores and things like that. Right. So uh, what we're doing is kind of, what I'm doing with this, what we're all doing is a, uh, not unlike a Da Vinci Code approach, we're saying that the original manuscript of the book from like 1720, whenever it was published, yeah. that there's a palimpsest that, that under that text, that handwritten text, is the directions to a place on earth that has like a warp to an alternate earth where these places really exist. Oh, wow. So it takes place today, but once our hero goes through the looking glass, so to speak, you get to these lands which are savage and weird uh, and strange. So, uh, uh, you know, we're not going to have people like, you know, with buckles on their shoes and like, you know, lace collars.
0: Right, like the last Gulliver's Travel movie where the cute little lily pits. Yeah, yeah. That need to be saved by Gulliver. Oh, yeah, or the, or the Jack Black version, you
1: know. Yeah, that's what I
0: mean, yeah, the the latest telling of it that was all cutesy-poo and everything else, and, yeah. But, okay, so that's where people can find you, they can look forward to the book. Um, I'm definitely now extremely interested in this Gulliver's Travels, and, um,
1: go ahead, sir. That'll be next year. Next year.
0: That's okay, it. yeah, but I'm still
1: psyched for it now. We're filming in Ireland and Spain in the spring. I think we're filming all the places that Game of Thrones films, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So do you, to, you do... Um, you have to clean yeah. up all this noise on your podcast.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I can edit all that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm my own miracle worker, like I said. I mean, I do 100% of all this. Just me. I cut them. I, I do them. I cut them. I release them and everything else. So it's just me. And I work a 40-hour-a-week job. Uh-huh. <laughs> so like i' I'm I'm, I'm I'm the guy who fixes
1: things that break at at your local retail store uh-huh i t uh, 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 stuff i mean like uh, technical stuff or what uh
0: always on my own never ne- never in a professional capacity i can uh i can basically build a house i can do air conditioning and plumbing and electrical you know painting drywall wallpaper uh basically I am a scholarly nerd who, just because of a blue collar background, never thought of myself higher than working with my hands. So now that I am looking at forty, I started the podcast so that I could at least be somehow involved. Well, those are valuable,
1: it, those are valuable skills. In fact, uh, when I was in the army, that can't be KP duty. The first day, uh, in, in first day of basic training, they say, "All right, troops, anybody here know how to do electrical work?" carpentry, and I knew all that stuff because uh, when I was a kid, my dad gave me a driver's license. He said, well, it's great to get a driver's license and meet me at the car lot. I'm going to buy you a car. And I'm up there looking at, like, sports cars and stuff. He says, no, we're getting you a station wagon because you're going to be picking up the real estate signs and pumping out basements that flood because I'm, like, you know, giving, I'm giving you this car and I'm giving you and I'm paying for your gas. And so I learned all these tricks. You know, like, so I would, if there was a problem in the building, like, I would, like, fix the light. Or learn how to spackle a wall, you know yep. like anything simple before we actually got a real got the real contractors. So anyway, it was a great gig because everybody else was getting sucked into into KP duty. Uh, uh, they had a, we had uh, six guys on the base that would go to this one office and we sat there reading comic books and stuff until somebody called and said we need a light switch for places up. I mean, this oh, is see, not that's we greatness, doing, yeah, yeah. But this was not when we were like doing the hot. This is our days off in the hospital and stuff. You know what I mean? Right? Like,
0: yeah, I mean, yeah, I know what you mean. But yeah, like for me, I mean, I've always written, but I've never had the balls to show it to anybody. Well, I've always, you know, like I, I don't know, I, I and I don't mean blue collar, like I'm the downtrodden proletariat. I don't, but what I mean is, you know, instead of college, I went in the army. Instead of this, you know, um, in high school, I was put in honor classes, and by by fresh by the end of freshman year, and then by my senior year, I had been. I had done 5 stints in juvie for uh-huh. learning that I really liked to get into fist fights. It was never for anything really criminal. I didn't run with a gang, I didn't do drugs, I didn't, but I really liked to fight and it eventually caught up to me. Uh-huh. Um and then uh so you know, I like I never really gave myself m- right. much of a shot outside of it's living never, the it's traditional. never too
1: late. it's never too late in fact. I I just saw something the other day on on uh uh, somebody on the somebody somebody just wrote to Patton Oswalt and said it's too late to start a career in show business it was in Patton Oswalt's Twitter feed he said no and he named a couple of people he knows that did, did that uh, uh, the, the uh, Rabbi Hillel the greatest uh, Rabbi in all of the uh, 5,000 years of, of history uh, he was a loser till he was 40 he didn't, he didn't even open a book till he was 40 it's never too late
0: alright guys that was Stephen E. D'Souza like I said what a cool guy Loved the stories, found out more stuff about movies that I've loved since forever than I ever thought I'd know. Uh, Great inside view, really good advice, not just to me, which I love that he took time to talk to me personally like that, but for anybody else that's got a project or a dream or something or a talent that they haven't really brought out yet. What a great conversation there in the last couple minutes um, from a guy who actually has made it and has been there. So uh, as always, thanks for listening, guys. Remember to make the world a better place one nerd at a time.